Okay, Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, Wassalatu Wassalam ala Rasulillah. Dear brothers and sisters, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, and welcome to another episode of the Ilm Feed podcast. This is the podcast where I get to meet really interesting people and share a conversation with you so that hopefully uh, you can be inspired by them and that we can all benefit from them. And my guest today falls squarely into that category. It is none other than Sister Naima B. Robert. Sister Naima is descended from Scottish Highlanders on her father's side and the Zulu people on her mother's side. She was born in Leeds, grew up in Zimbabwe and went to university in London. At high school, her loves included performing arts, public speaking and writing stories that shocked her teachers. Her popular From My Sister's Lips explored the reality of living as a Muslim woman in the West. She's also written several multicultural books for children. She was founder and editor of Sisters Magazine, the magazine for fabulous Muslim women. And currently she's running the Muslima Writer Project, uh, training, mentoring, and publishing the next generation of Muslim writers. Salam alaikum, Naima. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And she also happens to be my friend. Yes. Alhamdulillah. Those are the best types of Alhamdulillah. Yes. Naima. Have you reflected on the fact that the first time we met was in a studio like this? <laughs> Subhanallah, it's crazy. It's so much has happened since then as right. well. So, so much. So, so I was a presenter for Ramadan Radio, Radio Reality yes. in uh, North West London. And uh, I had been reading your book it's from my sister's lips. And every time I turned the page, I was like, oh, my God. This sister has said everything we wanted people to know about us, you know, and I just loved the book. And I thought this sister is somebody who is wise, mashallah, uh, somebody who's really thought about this. But I think the greatest thing that I got from your book was that you were confident and you were mm -hmm. owning our stories mm -hmm. in a way that I'd never considered doing, you know, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of sisters had never mm -hmm. really considered doing. And so um, when I had the opportunity to invite people onto the show, I was like, I want to get this sister. So uh, somehow yeah. I, I reached out yeah. and you turned up and that was the first time we met. Yeah, yeah. And uh, thankfully, alhamdulillah, we've met many times since <laughs> then and been involved in amazing things together. So it's a, it's a privilege and an honour to be here. Jazakallah khairan for inviting me. Jazakallah khairan. And um, I think it was there that we actually even began sort of talking about Sisters Magazine. Yeah, um, yeah, and you invited me, and you know I consider you to be someone who's really uh, helped me and mentored me, um, and kind of uh, championed me and many other sisters, you know, to give us that confidence that maybe was lacking um, in not only owning our stories mm. but also being confident enough to tell them, yeah, and to develop ourselves as writers. Mm, so mm. I really want to thank you for that. No, alhamdulillah. Uh, I think one of the things that, uh, as you probably know, Sisters Magazine resulted from my experiences with From My Sister's Lips because uh, when the book came out, uh, there was a, quite a bit of media attention. You know, I was on TV, I was on the radio, I was in the newspaper. Uh, and, you know, and I was invited to come and speak on lots of different stages and lots of different platforms, including like a whole tour of South Africa. And I remember that one of the things that people kept saying again and again was, you know, your story is so inspirational, you know, and 
I guess when I came back, I thought, you know, how can we continue this conversation? How can we continue to inspire each other and support each other and and let us know that we are not alone? How could we continue doing that? So my first idea was a website. And that was back in the day before, you know, websites were a thing and obviously before Facebook and everything. Um, but my first idea was some kind of social website, like a social online community. And then kind of moved on from that to become a magazine and it was an online magazine at first and the thing that I really want to celebrate about sisters is that it placed Muslim women squarely in the center of their own narrative whereas a lot of the time when we are focused on writing we are writing for an external gaze so very often when we write there is an idea that we're presenting something to the outside and mm -hmm. I always used to say that Sisters Magazine is not a dower magazine it is our magazine for what we need it to be so whether it's celebrating our situations, uh, our life journeys, or examining the challenges that we're going through, or simply just talking about you know, our own lives as Muslim women, we were at the center of the discussion. It just so happened that people did give the magazine out for dower because yeah. it was a beautiful <laughs> magazine and it was great. But I, what I loved about it was because we didn't write it and we didn't bring people in to discuss things for the benefit of outsiders, we were able to be honest and we were able to be open. And if you remember, Sisters Magazine was one of the first places where we discussed things like depression, things like, you know, uh, you know uh, low confidence, for example, uh, you know, even dealing with marital issues we were really frank and open because it was our space and I'm just grateful because now obviously there's so many more spaces like that online so um, you know we're, we're, we're blessed in that respect but I think having sisters as the cent the central theme and the central participants of the discussion it, we were not being discussed by other people whether they were scholars or non-muslims or mm -hmm. anybody else uh, it was our conversation and we were talking to each other and i think that's what made a lot of it so powerful and what you said about the confidence the confidence comes from owning your space yeah, and taking up true. space and being confident to say this is who we are good bad ugly this is who we are love us, don't love us, whatever, but this is who we are and we are going to continue to be and live according to our values and strive to grow and evolve, etc. based on who we are, not on who you need us to be or who you don't right. want us to be or who you think we are. Does that make sense? Yeah, because I think both of us have had experience of being on other people's platforms, right? Being phoned up by the BBC or, <laughs> yeah. you know, whether mainstream or, you know, even other Muslim platforms. Yep. And often... Uh, if we're not owning that space, um, it's somebody else's agenda, totally. somebody el yeah. else's pigeonhole. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Right? They want you to talk about what they want you to talk about and address the yeah. issues that they feel are the big issues. Right. But sometimes those big issues that people want us to talk about are actually not the things that are affecting us in our daily lives, right. are not the things that are taking up the majority of our headspace. But when we are called out to, to speak, like you know, you know, it's someone else's uh, list. Okay, we want you to address this, this and this because Please we think those are the big issues. Please talk exactly. about this. Please talk about, and, and if you try to stray into anything yeah. else, it's like, oh, you, you're not fulfilling the little the remit. Yeah. role that we had planned for you. Yeah, you know? so, yeah. yeah. But, but at the same time, in the broader meaning of dawah, right, which is not just dawah to non-Muslims, <clears throat> but dawah amongst each other, mm -hmm. you know, supporting one another to follow the deen, yeah. supporting one another to think about things with the right mindset. Mm -hmm. So I think 
this sisters was absolutely doing that. no it was it was i think my 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 pushback was against a publication that was about presenting islam to outsiders right. because when we do that we are necessarily presenting usually a theoretical understanding yeah. and also you're putting not your reality. best face forward right yeah, because yeah. it's you know, it's a presentation so you're not allowed to you know do a warts and all presentation <laughs> no one wants that you know yeah. they want that you know they want the inviting and appealing side and i think not caring about that and not focusing on that meant that we were able to be much more honest always within an islamic environment is in, within islamic parameters mm. but able to really be ourselves yeah and i think that's a huge luxury that uh, that we had so alhamdulillah alhamdulillah um <clears throat> so can we go back a little bit because even though i've known you for many years i've never really asked you about your mother or your childhood or mm-hmm. you know um except for what i read in and from mm-hmm. my sister's lips but i think uh you know there were certain aspects discussed there but so tell us about your mother my mum <laughs> well um my parents were from south africa and my dad was white and my mother was black as you said in in the bio and so obviously they were not allowed to be together under the apartheid laws so they left um the south africa and caught, uh, and actually applied for asylum in the uk uh, my dad was at leeds university that's why i was born in leeds uh, and then we spent two years there and then we went to ethiopia and we lived in ethiopia for four years and then we moved wow. to zimbabwe so we were kind of following my dad a lot of the time and my dad uh, is and was a marxist who really wanted to live in a country that was you know as marxist as possible which is why we went to ethiopia and then at the time zimbabwe was also just newly independent so to be closer to home and closer to family that was still in south africa we went down to zimbabwe and i'm i'm very very grateful as an african to have grown up in africa because i know that yeah people in the african diaspora so uh, a lot of people don't know that i'm mixed race or they don't know that i consider myself black or african or anything but i when i meet p- black people muslim or not muslim who've grown up in the west or in the diaspora mm-hmm. i can see how valuable growing up in africa was for me in terms of my confidence mm-hmm. and being grounded uh, and so i grew up in zimbabwe still an outsider because we were not zimbabwean and anybody who's uh, zimbabwean knows zimbabwean culture is based on the extended family and so if you're not part of someone's extended family you are necessarily going to be on the outside but you know sometimes i think sometimes being on the outside of things even slightly gives you a different perspective and for me i feel privileged to be connected with so many identities but still have a level of distance so that i'm able to be i guess um like circumspect about them i'm not mm-hmm. so deep in any identity that i can't see okay this is going really well this is an advantage and this is this is actually really messed up over here like i don't accept that so anyway um growing up in zimbabwe you know did the whole school thing was you know head girl of my school i was I was like an, an a student um and uh in a private school right? it actually it it was a government school but it was one of the best government schools so it wasn't a private school my dad was against private schools so he he would never have sent us there um but in school i i was very heavily involved in public speaking in drama they gave me a lot of leeway <laughs> a lot of like, be because shona is not my my mother tongue so a lot of people around the world who have an accent is because their mother tongue is not english but my mother tongue is english so when i first arrived from zimbabwe i had a slight accent because 
a bit like Trevor Noah. It's a bit more like Trevor Noah's accent. Um, but uh, it, it, when I went to London, because I pick up accents really easily, it just, it's all gone. And so when I'm presenting, normally I try to be very, you know, well-spoken and, you know, present myself very professionally. But if I'm on Instagram Live, you know, I might drop some like, you know, what and what you doing and like just sort it out and all of that kind of thing. So, you know, it, 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 it kind of, it blends, I guess. Um, but I really feel those years in school laid the groundwork for who I am today. In what way? The confidence. Mm -hmm. The because I did some crazy stuff. Like I really had this 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 visionary mentality from when I was about 16, 17. Like once I wrote a whole musical. This whole play mm -hmm. from scratch. It was completely original. I wrote all the songs, I wrote all the dialogue and everything. And I actually got my school to perform it, you know? And, you know, I made the scripts, I did everything. I got my people in to come and film it. You know, we designed the costumes, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, public speaking, you know, I won public sport competitions again and again and again. Uh, we, we did so, and that's something that I, 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 I lament for my children and a lot of kids in this generation that school is not such an enriching experience for many kids nowadays because, especially who are in state schools, they go in, drill, 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 test, 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 exam, exam, exam. And the other stuff, like the school life stuff, you know, if you're in the sports, you the know, if you, stuff, all the yeah. rich and the cultural and the sporting things, I don't see this, this generation having them because their funds have been cut so badly. And also teachers are so stretched now with, you know, the, all the demands on their time and everything. Anyway, going completely off topic here. But when I was at school, I believed I could do anything. And my school pretty much played along because <laughs> yeah. they gave me a lot of leeway. And I was the head girl and I set up the centenary committee and we did a fundraising for this huge celebration of the school's 100 years. People believed in me. And so I think I carried that with me and it's kind of ebbed and flowed. But when I look at sort of Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, what I've been able to do as a Muslim woman, as a mother, as someone who wears niqab, if, I, if my confidence hadn't been like laid when I was at school, I don't think I would have done half the things I did. I just wouldn't have had the guts to do it because it just was not the done thing. You know, when you're you know a Muslim and you've got young children, you don't just decide I'm going to write a memoir. Like, who does that? <laughs> you know, and like say, okay, oh, to your agent. Okay, yeah, go on. I, c I can carry that off. You know, yeah, let's do it. You know, you don't just like start sending books out to publishers that you've never heard of, you know, writing about being Muslim and Islam and stuff like that. You don't just leave the country to go and live in Egypt, you know. You don't just start a company. You don't just start a magazine, you know. So I'm very, very grateful for that time. Uh, Alhamdulillah. And I think you also had quite a, quite a foundational experience when you were young, didn't you? to sort of give you yeah. that confidence. I loved school, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. My teachers were just constantly motivating me, constantly. It really, it's amazing, because I also wrote a play yeah. for the school. <laughs> Did you? I didn't know And that. we performed it. Wow, uh, It amazing. wasn't a musical, I don't think. But, <clears throat> you know, it was a play. I was yeah. the narrator as well. <laughs> amazing. And so we've had a quite yeah. similar experience in that regard. And, um, yeah, I mean, I wanted to be an astronaut. And my, yeah. my science teacher, I went to him and asked him, and he said, and he's, look, by the way, he's looking at this girl with a hijab on, right? I was a teenager at the time. And he said, well, what you should do is join the RAF. You should join the Air Force because most astronauts are mm -hmm. uh, pilots. Yeah. <clears throat> and I literally phoned the RAF. And wow. I, joined, I joined the RAF cadets, you know. Wow. So, but that, 
it, I left very soon afterwards because it was just not my kind of scene, right? Mm. But it kind of tells you how important it is for yeah. in those early years for the voices in your head yeah. to be the voices that say, you can figure it out. Yeah. There is a way. You just have to figure out the path. Yeah. You, and, and, and just giving those opportunities, yeah. which is why I was quite surprised that when I've talked to you in the past about <clears throat> schooling, that you were quite, you know, not very positive about schooling. Mm. Um, because for me, because of my positive schooling experience, yes. I wanted my kids to, ha- to go to school. Yeah. But the thing is, I wanted my kids to have what I had. Mm-hmm. But I see kids today don't really have that. Most majority of kids... I just see, well, like I said, so many schools have had their funding cut. They've had to let go of playing fields. You know, that vibrant school life, I think, really happens mainly in private schools now. Across the world, not just uh, in the UK. But I see that they hold on to that. You know, having lots of clubs available, having lots of activities. Sports is taken very seriously and all of that. But in our state schools, uh, I don't see that to be the case. So, you know, and and I saw that when I was in Egypt as well. So obviously my kids were, they spent you know, about 10 years in Egypt. And, you know, the Egyptian school system similarly is not based around extracurricular activities or anything yeah. like that. It's very much study, 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 work, work, work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then go to the, the nadi after school. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that's why I, I, I longed for my children to have that experience. But when I saw that in general in school today, the focus has shifted. Um, I started to just re-examine uh, re-examine my thoughts about that and also I think um, even the schools that we went to and the school system that we were in I think for those who are primed for that we we soared but then there were others who maybe are not the A players they are not the alpha males and they didn't do so well because of the yeah. emphasis on whatever so you know I think it's schooling is a tough one school yeah. and education is a tough one I think what I've seen over the years is that there's there's always a trade-off to have the Islamic side and the manners with the high academics and the cultural and sporting and facilities. It's almost it's well nigh impossible. But uh, so you kind of have to make your choices. I Every think parent most has to make parents choices. do mm. struggle and they muddle through. They f- they they have to make a decision yeah. and then they make decision based on what works. I yeah. think yeah, in yeah. their particular circumstances so like whenever sisters you know they often ask or discuss what's the best way to educate your child you know for me there's like there's no there's one no one way formula, there's no right? one fit is there what would you say to sisters when they when they ask you that you know is homeschooling the way is because i know m- many sisters do homeschool and um they enjoy it they get a lot out of it and their children get a lot out, out of it but there was a time in, I don't know if you were, like, you'd heard about this, but there was a time when homeschooling was very much being promoted as the only way, right? So, unschooling, right? Um, and uh, there was a sort of a guilt trip narrative, right? Yeah. Basically, schooling is like the lazy parents thing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think sometimes some of the people who were proponents of that, and sometimes they were scholars, right? Famous scholars, especially from America and... I think sometimes they might not have realized that not everyone has like a lovely California ranch, right? <laughs> to, to bring Which their kids up. Which of course is the in, ideal right? scenario uh, for homeschooling. But and, anyway, and most people, or yeah. many people out there who are listening to that, 
sort of feeling that homeschooling is the only way, they're literally in a council flat, right? With very restricted resources, very restricted time, um, struggling with their marriage. You know, I mean, there's so many things going on that actually it would probably be better for their kids if they did have have an external space. Some stability somewhere. Mm. Right. So I think that kind of narrative of like giving parents guilt trips, you know, about about any any choice that they make I think is kind of mm, unhealthy to be unhealthy. honest I, I really I agree with you but I also think that like no I can't see anybody having the monopoly on success right. at the moment right now yeah. because there are homeschoolers who have done amazingly well there are homeschoolers right. who have failed miserably same mm. with Islamic schools there's some some kids who've been through Islamic school and they've been amazingly successful and yeah. others who've been scarred by the Islamic yeah. school system similarly with state schools similarly with private schools so I don't think anyone right now can say our way was the best yeah. yes we are the I winners mm. and another thing as well is I feel that in those early days the push for homeschooling came from a place of fear and anxiety mm. about the greater society, about the wider society and the influences of the wider society. Mm. I, I don't know whether we're talking about the same thing here, but I remember that when people had homeschooling as an option back in the day, it was to protect your children. Yeah. It was to to keep them safe away yeah. from the influences of whatever and and be able to nurture them in a bubble almost. Mm. Um, and that has its drawbacks because I feel that if you're going to uh, homeschool, you must take extreme responsibility for preparing your child for the future. Mm. which means that they must have an understanding of the outside world. So for me, this is my personal view and somebody else can say, you know, that that doesn't work for me. And again, everyone is preparing their children for different things. (laughs) So some of our children will be the scholars of the future. Some of our children will be the academics of the future. Some will be the online marketing gurus of the future. Some will be the homemakers of the future. The photographers, the designers, the bricklayers, the, you know, the, the architects, the accountants, the lawyers, and all of them will need their own specialized pathway towards that, that mm-hmm. end goal, right? Yep. So somebody maybe who didn't do as much in terms of history or humanities is on a track to become an accountant anyway. So fair enough. But I feel like the breadth of education that a lot of homeschoolers kind of should have been going for they were not going for because it the 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 focus was so narrow the focus is make sure they've got maths and english because they have to have maths and english and then quran maybe arabic lots of islamic studies and that's it if you've done that then you're good and that's not i just don't agree with that Mm. because i think that the children deserve to be opened up to experiences you know that we have access to and remember as well that like you're saying about being in a council flat there are levels of access in this society, which many of us, if we've come from immigrant backgrounds or we live in the inner city, a lot of us don't have access to the culture yeah, yeah. or don't feel comfortable in those spaces. Mm. There, and it's something that's widely reported that children from, you know, immigrant families or it's, a, you know, like BAME families don't access museums don't access national parks don't access the stuff that's out there that could really enrich our experience you know Mm. we know people who go walking do your relatives go walking on the sunday afternoon no they don't yes they do (laughs) do they really siblings do yeah they're your siblings but they're english they're (laughs) members of the national trust they're english they're They're completely english fine they're always 
calling me over to go come to some park or right. stately home or but that yeah, is access that is yeah. cultural capital mm. that they have and it's a very english Definitely. thing but, but we learned that from school well, this is we so got a lot of it from school right okay because i don't think my parents would have no naturally as immigrants wouldn't no. have naturally thought of though my dad did get us annual pass for the british and the uh, natural history museum so he was that sort of person. he was going on that way mashallah yeah but yeah, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, by the way, I, I just want to make clear, I'm not saying that if you live in a council flat, you can't homeschool, right? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that I've actually met people who I wish would not homeschool. You know, mm. Because sometimes <clears throat> the people are actually quite neurotic yeah. about their kids and that's what's leading them. But to, this is what I was saying, is this coming from a place of fear and anxiety and yeah. that's never going to be good because anytime your action is spurred by fear and anxiety and emotion, or scarcity yeah. or lack, yep. you're not going to get good results from that because right. again, you're, you're, you're like trying to get away from something but you don't really have a vision for where you want to go. All you know is you don't want that. You don't want that, whatever that scary thing is. Yeah. But then now you're like, okay, what do I do now? You know, what mm-hmm. do I do? Buy some let's you know, worksheets and some, you yeah, know, so those yeah. workbooks, make them sit down there and then they get bored and they get fractious and then you go give them the iPad. You know, it's 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 not a small undertaking. And so when you want to take it on, I think you really need to have a vision for your family and for your children. And I think a lot of parents do, but I think maybe every parent needs to have that vision of where where they're going. You know, rather than what they're trying to escape from or trying to keep them safe from, right. where is it that you're going? What is it that you're building for your children? Absolutely. What is it you're giving them for their future? Because at the end of the day, our job as parents is to equip our children with the tools they will need to stand on their own two feet, to be responsible, you know, dedicated slaves of Allah and citizens of the world, right? Absolutely. So as long as you have that as your goal, then your your question is, how can I best prepare them for that? Whether yeah. you're using school, whether it's homeschool, whether it's online school, whether it's private, Islamic, tutors, whatever the case may be. Yeah. Mm. You'd, I, as a parent, just want to know I have done my utmost to prepare these children to be to stand on their own two feet. Because I, I, where, I, where I live, uh, up north, uh, there is a huge thing about girls' education. Okay, and it still is an issue. So girls will be in school because they have to be, but you mean Muslim? This is yeah, Muslim yeah. girls will be mm. in school because you know obviously they have to be legally, but it's not expected that they'll continue after sixteen. Mm-hmm. And I remember, um, and so there's always like that 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 tension because the Muslim schools want to encourage the girls to do well and to 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 push themselves to excel in their GCSEs, and some of the girls might want to do that on the one hand. But on the other hand, they know that there's no point because their parents are not going to let them do A-levels anyway. They're going to go into really? an Alima course or get married. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, so so there's this tension with, for the school because the school is trying to support the parents, which is why the parents put them in the school in the first place. But then they're also trying to support the child and what the child is capable of and the potential of the child. So there's that. And another thing that just occurred to me was in Zimbabwe and in South Africa, there are Muslim communities where the girls go to school and finish at primary school. And then they stay home and they homeschool. But that homeschooling initially is like maybe a little bit of reading and writing, a bit of maths, no exams after that stage. And the whole idea is to keep her safe from society, to keep her safe from corruption so that when she gets married, she will be pure and she'll be a good Muslim wife. And that kind of thing is very scary for me because take you as a parent out of the equation, that child is not equipped. And not, not only that, that young woman 
for her to then raise the next generation. Mm. How well equipped is she to even raise but, children, you know, that are that are well prepared? I don't know. What do you think about that? I sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable, like, looking at other countries and cultures and sort of thinking, well, why why don't they care about the things that we care about? Sometimes I think maybe they've got a reality that they're actually preparing their children for that we in the luxurious, decadent West, you know, are not appreciative of, right? So maybe they're preparing them for the reality that they need to be prepared for. Um, that could be the case, but in this case, no, <laughs> because these are people who live in suburban Johannesburg, suburban Harare, which is just as, you know, kind of, what are the words you use? Decadent? <laughs> yeah. Just as, you know, just as cosmopolitan, you know, as the mm. UK. It's really more about parents setting a path for their children and restricting them to that path because that's what they want for them and that's what's acceptable as far as they are concerned. And I just feel... If you've not educated your daughter beyond standard seven or whatever, I feel you've done her a disservice because yeah. one day she will have to have her own family and she may not have you there to, to help her to navigate because her kids will probably go into school as well and will be growing up in a wider society. Um, but anyway. But also, where does the fear come from? I think, you know, it's, it's important to find out, like, why, why are they so fearful? Because I remember I went to a... Um, because initially I was homeschooling, right? And uh, then I just felt that uh, for my my children, that schooling would be better. I, I, I made that decision. And they got entrance into Muslim schools, which was really hard to get into. And, and I needed that community. I loved having that community, you know, yeah. and being able to meet those. And also I loved them having contact with other people, other teachers yeah. who weren't, gonna have a bad day hopefully you know like my mom would probably um and stuff like that right yeah. so i i feel like their lives have been enriched by having different mentors in agreed their lives and, yeah so that worked for me but i remember initially when uh, you know we we're doing homeschooling um i went to this course about homeschooling and the lady who was presenting she was, she made a really good point she said homeschooling isn't about protecting your children from the world hmm. It's about you introducing your children to the world. Yeah. And I thought, wow. Just I love even that. that shift. I love that. Mm. Even that shift in thinking is like, yes, there's the big bad world out yeah. there. Okay. But you're going to go into that world. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, the whole topic of the devouring mother. I don't know if you've heard of this, like, it's probably a Freudian thing, right? It sounds <laughs> yeah. very Freudian. Right? You know, like sort of the, the Oedipus com complex, right. do they call it? Yeah. Uh, but anyway... Um, the devouring mother idea is that, you know, especially boys, right, the mother can tend to uh, over mollycoddle her sons, mm. right, and not allow them to become people who can stand on their own two feet mm. because she kind of fears that they'll leave her, right? Mm. So there's almost like a payoff that I'm going to keep you close. I'm not going to make you capable of doing anything. <laughs> so Sounds like a Desi mother-in-law, so to be honest. <laughs> So that you can constantly be dependent on me. Right, yeah, yeah. And you will never leave me. And right? I think that, so, just to jump in on mm. that, because this is something that's been coming up a lot where we've, we're finding that sort of young men, you know, even even the amount of power that a mother wields over the choice of her daughter-in-law. I, I saw a poster that was a matchmaking event for female relatives. And I'm sorry, but I find that so strange. So that again, a matchmaking, a matchmaking event, event for female relatives. So the female relatives of the boy and the girl, 
yeah. come to an event where they're matching, okay? And I'm sorry, but I find that so bizarre because... So, Yanni, mother... Mothers looking for daughters-in-laws. Looking... For daughters, daughters and yeah. daughters-in-laws and sisters-in-laws, right? And mm-hmm. why I say that is because... <laughs> um, Maybe the son sent them. He, he may have, but that's him rene- reneging on his responsibility. Because why I say that is that as a mother, I may want a particular type of girl yeah. for me. As mother of this boy, as the mother-in-law, as the matriarch, I want mm-hmm. a particular type of girl. She's going to fit in well with my family. She's going to do what I want her to do. She's the kind of girl that I can get along with, right? Mm-hmm. But she's not the one marrying the girl. It's him who's marrying the girl. And the relationship will be between them. So for me, the idea of going out and and actually um, filtering the options for my son based on my needs and what I want, I find it very bizarre. And and also, just just to think this point, because (laughs) I'm wondering how much of my son's true personality I know enough to be able to say, oh, no, he would like her. No, no, I think they would really get along. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. especially nowadays, a lot of the time, boys have got mm. a completely different life outside of home. Their identity out there on the street, at work, etc., can be so different to who they are at home. Mm-hmm. So me as a mother, if I'm not very close with my son, like he's really honest with me, very open with me, okay, because out of respect, he just shows me what I want to see. He shows me the side of him that he knows I approve of, right? I'm going to go and look for a wife for him based on what I know of him. But how much do I really know about him? I don't know. I, I, yeah. I, I just find it very strange. And so as a mother-in-law, I can say we want somebody who's fair and educated <laughs> and from this, mm. this village. Right. But my question is always, did he tell you to look for that? Yeah. Are those his criteria? Is that what he wants in a wife? She must be fair, mum. That's true. She needs to be educated, mum, <clears throat> and she needs to come from our village, okay? Don't bring me anyone else except for someone who fulfills that. Or does he have a completely different set of criteria that she's not aware of? Like, he doesn't like funny women, for example. Yeah. I don't like women who are too jokey. Or I need someone with a sense of humour. If she doesn't have a sense of humour, I'm not going to be able to get along with her. You know what I mean? Those more subtle things that a picture and a CV, they don't do justice. So if you've got mums kind of like looking and, you know, comparing, oh, this one, who's pretty, oh, who's... I just think it's bizarre. And I I think... I I think appreciate when it goes to an extreme, and I know that a lot of brothers suffer, you know, when they're sort of ancestors, you know, forced to marry somebody who they really would have chosen. But at the same time, I like to present maybe a more nuanced or middle middle view. Please do. And that is that... (laughs) <clears throat> probably it's a cultural thing, yeah? It is a cultural thing, It is yeah. a cultural thing. And so I'll give you an example. My mother-in-law, when my husband was looking to get married, he's about 25, mm. so she said to him, please, can you marry somebody who speaks Urdu? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And I, I just remember that she really wanted, but, but it was kind of like a joint thing. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, they wanted somebody who was kind of more traditional, right? From mm-hmm. a more traditional kind of background right and so now somebody could say well you know well I don't want I'm not interested in Urdu right Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter to me Mm -hmm. right but I really think that the fact that she did express something Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because she cares about her son yes she cares about and and also when we're marrying we are especially in the Asian communities Mm -hmm. yeah we are two families are coming together yeah um 
there is a lot of inter intermingling and it kind of living together and or living very closely mm -hmm. right so i think by her expressing that it was kind of courageous and brave of her to I do agree. so i agree because what then happened was we got on like a house on fire yes right? yeah and i could speak to her yeah. and we we could speak on a deep level yes we could and and i loved her so much yes. she passed away yeah um, a few years ago but i loved her so much mm -hmm. like she treated me like a daughter and but i think we underestimate sometimes the importance of language you know mm -hmm. um same with other people i know i don't think they have the same relationship with their sons or daughters-in-law that can't speak their language mm -hmm. so that's just one example but yeah. what i'm what i mean is that there is a balance as well like um i can imagine my son saying to me am i you know um i want you to be involved yeah right mm -hmm. uh because that is the culture yes you know so but, but when but it gets... how, but this is the thing is hmm. you know how involved because right. if i say please marry someone who speaks urdu that's my right to say that but let's just be clear that's for me it's not yeah. for you my son it's what i want okay and what i'm saying is mm, just it could it, be for both of you as well but then he would have had that then he would have already stipulated that if that was what something that was but important to him sometimes young people don't you don't think very far ahead right like they get they get excited about the way someone looks, right? Yeah. I'm just saying that mm. that parental input does have a place, and I think it's quite clever of young people mm -hmm. if they can keep their parents involved. I agree. But where they draw the line, so yeah. So for my Agreed. husband, for example, mm. he was religious, mm -hmm. and his parents had, were not from that much of a religious background initially, yeah. but they became more religious. Mm. So he, for him, it was like she must be like this yes 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 right which was different to what to they, what they were expecting or been relaxed about open or, to yeah, right. yeah. Mm. so there was like almost like a negotiation <laughs> yeah right? a family negotiation and, yeah. and i think that's healthy because i've seen mothers who don't say anything yeah and then later they sort of like don't get on you know um, yeah and that's because they you know didn't really express some of their needs isn't there's nothing wrong with expressing something that's going to bring harmony to the home now when it gets to the extreme right where you're literally you know shutting things down you're not allowing mm. your son to have his own autonomy and and it's not a negotiation but it's a di yeah it's a tutorial di relationship yeah and, and <laughs> these I can are imagine, my demands but, yeah. but I, I guess what i'm querying is and maybe this is again i'm not from the culture yeah uh, and certainly we have a very different approach in africa even in african traditional culture it's nowhere near on the level of of asian cultures in terms of family involvement and also family entitlement to make decisions on behalf of their children in africa we have respect but parents don't have that kind of blanket this is what you're doing you know so we don't have that background so i mm. want to just uh, acknowledge that right now so that you know i am speaking as an outsider but my my query i guess is more about the relationship between yeah. the the man and the woman right and how much the mother of, you mean or the, no no the man the and his wife and his yeah, wife, the, yeah the, the, the actual husband and wife right because getting along with your mother-in-law is great mm -hmm. but how much of that actually feeds into the relationship i know that not getting along with your mother-in-law can cause problems mm. right i get that mm -hmm. but i think the issues of compatibility true compatibility true understanding and respect between the spouses i mm -hmm. think that has to be the foundation it can't be she fits into our family because that's i think i see or i've seen and we have seen a lot of marriages where the two people in the marriage are simply not compatible 
They tick the boxes, like she's from the right type of family, he's from the right type of family, they seem both educated, it's all good, but as personalities, and in terms of their visions for the future, etc., they're just not compatible. And so you either have a situation where you've got a lot of divorces or a lot of loveless marriages. Mm. And, you know, I think that we as a community should be open to discussing some of these things in order to set our young people, especially the next generation, to set them up for success in their Definitely. marriages. Because I think what we are going to see is way more divorces. Because already within our generation, divorce is so much more common than it was in our parents' generation. Uh, and, and we're witnessing the fallout of that. And I think if we don't take action for the next generation now in terms of really preparing the, the men and the women, young men and women, for what marriage truly entails, but also for their relationship with themselves, you know, their own emotional well-being, their mental health, you know, like how they show up as, as, as individuals. I think if we don't work on that from a younger age and provide things across the board, like premarital counseling, like premarital training, like, you know, people who are available for you to talk if you really need like an outsider to come in. I think we need to be setting those up now. Otherwise, the next generation who are even more confused, to be fair, than we are or were, uh, I think they're going to have a really hard time of it. Wallahu alam. May Allah make it easy for them. I mean. And may Allah help us to make the like the balanced choices, yes, you know, the yes. balanced decisions. Because to be honest, I can't really understand that that desire of a mother for her son to be completely dependent on her like yeah. i'm waiting for them to leave okay <laughs> i hear that i hear that boys, go to uni go go somewhere a little bit far away i think i'll regret saying that actually because you um, will miss them so much yeah but i actually love the idea of my sons standing on their own. like yeah. my sons make tea for me right mm -hmm. so i came home after a, an ilm feed episode knackered and uh, my mum was there because she was helping look after the kids. And I said, Yusuf, make me a cup of tea. And she said, oh, poor boys. Ah, <laughs> oh, mum! <laughs> she said, poor boys. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Just sit down, mummy. It's okay. You'll make you, you know, a cup of tea because, too. <laughs> because she's the sort of mum who, when, <laughs> you know... She would never have asked us. I don't know why. She's Even just you, all you kids, not just the boys, all of you. Yeah. She would never have asked no. any of you. Interesting. She That's so interesting. Tea for us. Right. So this is. I so think I different... have a theory about this, mm. and I think that in previous generations, mothers invested their whole sense of identity and self worth in being able to mother, one hundred percent. And any decrease in that mothering meant a decrease mm. in their worth. You know, if my children no longer need me, then like, what am I doing here, basically, you know? And I think that that, that it, 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 on the one hand, it, it makes sense because if you've grown up believing that my mm. main role in life is to be a mother and to look after my children, look after my home and cook 10 million dishes and, and, and you know, make sure everyone's taken care of and no one has to lift a finger, any decrease in that actually impacts on you because now you start to feel useless. Like, well, there's nothing for me to do. Therefore, like, you know, what's what's the point of me being around here? So it kind of ends up being almost a power play because, you know, in, and I think it's subconscious. I think mm. you, you nurture the dependence because you need the dependence to feel validated and to feel valued. Mm. And so any Maybe. independence becomes threatening now because it's like, what do you mean you can do that without me? No, no, no. I'm supposed to do that for you because I love you and I want to do this for you. Don't yeah. like deprive think, me of I the opportunity to, to serve you or to, yeah. to look after you or to, to care for you in that way. It's a love languages thing. It's a love it's language. It's a love language. Definitely. Yeah. Like, 
for my mum, that's her love yeah, language. Exactly. You know? Like service totally. is her love language. And yeah. she was an orphan. She grew up being quite a serv- service-minded person, wow. right? All her life. Yeah. So I think it's it's not just about the cultural... Uh, I mean, I think uh, a lot of mothers of that generation, they got a lot from that. You know, they totally. felt they yeah. felt fulfilling. It was fulfilling. That. It's fulfilling. Because it makes they, you feel good it as was a woman. Meaningful, and it was yeah. But I, I actually think uh, for my mom, she just feels sorry for her grandkids. <laughs> you know, because I've noticed that parents feel sorrier for their grandkids. Like if they've got a much more sort of much softness for attitude them to the than they did with yeah, you necessarily, totally. right? So it's like they can't see that the discipline they gave you made you turn out the way you did because they don't yeah. want to do the same discipline with so the grandchildren. I, so they like, don't want them to go through when that. When I was Yusuf Sage, I was in Egypt knocking around cooking my own Look food, at that. right? You know? And but Yusuf was like, you know. To her, he's still a baby, so yeah. I think it's more about the the grandchild thing. But but that whole idea of like um, you know allowing children to actually be part of the family, to to do the chores, to mm. be in to be involved, yeah. Um, and those are life skills, you know. Yeah, <laughs> they're, totally. they're literally going to need them. Yeah, yeah. And it um, causes it, it. Just I think you know the more um, capable. I'm not going to say independent. I'll just use the word capable. The more capable our children are across the board, right? The more desirable they'll be as life partners, right? Because I really see that with this next generation of girls, even the 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 the, the rhetoric even amongst us and our generation, but definitely the next generation is. I don't want to marry a child. I don't want to marry somebody Mm -hmm. who I have to carry along, who I have to develop or I have to nurture or I have to make him into the man that he's going to be. I want to marry a partner. And I think Michelle Obama mentioned this. She did. She talked about marrying somebody who will be a strong teammate. Yeah. That if you both have like strengths that are complementary, as a team, you're going to go way further mm. rather than you're the strong one and you marry like a weak teammate. And now you're overcompensating for the weakness of the other of the other partner, yeah. you know. And of course, this, we're talking about complementary strengths here. So I'm not saying the woman, this man, that or anything, but just complementary. And I think the more capable our children are. Definitely. And more if we resilient. want, our, especially our sons, if we want them to be the head of the house, yeah. if we want them to be leaders, they better. They have like to be leaders. able to step up because otherwise <laughs> right. you have a situation where he feels entitled to the name of Amir, mm. but actually cannot back it up with yeah. action, with forethought, with confidence, with certainty. He doesn't have any of that, but yet he feels the entitlement because he's been told you are going to be the head of your household. So you want to have both. (laughs) I would like that for my sons where they've got the confidence and certainty to say, inshallah, I can handle this. I can take on this responsibility. I am going to do everything I can to make sure I take care of my responsibilities because that is why I'm head of the household, to Mm. take care of my responsibilities rather than They've got no idea about taking care of responsibilities. They don't believe they really can do it. They've got a lot of lack of lack of confidence, self-esteem issues, etc. But they still are given the stamp of head of the household. It's a bit of a cognitive dissonance, really. It's, yeah. And I and I think it, 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 it we see it. I keep seeing it again and again where you've got these marriages where the man will expect to be head of the household. So he's kind of honored in that way gets the big piece of chicken that's what we call it <laughs> you know you got you know i'll let dad go first or yeah. you know these types of things oh do your dad sleeping all of that kind of thing yeah, the respect yeah the, the, the respect right <laughs> but on the other hand he's not actually leading the family the wife is 
the one constantly thinking about what's the next step? What's the next move? How can we improve? What about could, this child? Could be because women <laughs> tend to be higher in, uh, you know, neuroticism. Like from a from a oh. psycho. Yeah, I've, I've, why I've, is that I've neurotic read... though? No, no, not in neurotic. Neuroticism isn't not a negative trait necessarily. Right. It means where you overanalyze and you analyze things. A right. Lot. And in if you look at like, because um, I've been listening and uh, reading quite a lot of like these psychologists and yeah. and they say that. Uh, there's five big traits, right? And one of them is neuroticism. Yes, I know. And I've women, done personality women tend tests to be on those, yeah. higher in that. I'm very low so, in the neuroticism, by the way. Right. When I did the test, I was super low in neuroticism. Really, yeah. so I, I think, was quite I, think I am as well. So, yeah. so what I mean is like, okay, so I, I get that. And that's why it's really important when at the time of choosing a spouse mm. that, you know, we do have the sort of longer term things in mind right because it's all totally. very well being attracted to somebody oh, forget that but <laughs> seriously seriously like you've forgotten what it's like to wait, be wait, 19 I, but i guess so, i have but uh, yeah. my point is and i don't know how many young people listen to this okay but what everybody needs to understand is that our tastes are shaped by our environment okay they're not everything's not biological and inter interior there's a lot of it being shaped by your environment mm. and if the, the young people who are listening to this or people who have young people, young, you know, kids who are growing up, mm -hmm. they are growing up in an age of Instagram, of, uh, you know, uh, what's the, it's called highlighting and, you know, shaping and, you know, fake eyelashes, fake nails, huge Botox lips, you know, certain types of body images, certain body shapes, hair extensions. This is the world they're growing up in. So... To, to kind of, I'm sorry, but, and I, I'm, I, don't, I, I don't mean to sound bad, but really park the attraction thing at the door when you're looking to get married. Because the rest of the world is basing their attraction and the level of attraction with people on hooking up. Because that's the culture that we live yeah. in. We live in a hooking up culture. You it's base... for a short-term gratification. Exactly. And if the person looks good, you will get your short-term gratification. So well done to you. However... We as Muslims have a very different intent when we're going into marriage. Mm -hmm. And so you really need to try to detach yourself from whether it's images from Instagram or images from like TV or even porn and things like that. You really need to cleanse yourself of that so you can see true beauty because that's what's going to last. You may think to yourself as a young Muslim guy, no, I want a hot wife. I want a hot hijabi wife and all of this kind of thing. But that is surface. And mm. it, not only is it surface, but it's actually fake. Because most of us girls, we know, you take off all the highlighters and the shading and all of that kind of thing. You look completely different. So really, you know, kind of having that conversation with, you know, our boys and our girls to say the attraction is nice, but just understand that, Physical attraction is not a reason to marry somebody and commit your whole life to them because it's just not going to last, is it? It's okay if you're just going to have like, you know, a, you know, a fling or whatever. But for us as Muslims to really commit to somebody, we need to be willing to look so much deeper. And I think that's where parents come in <laughs> I agree. as well, because sometimes, you know, as a young person, you're not thinking yeah. that yeah. far yeah. ahead. Yeah. And I think like whenever, if I had a proposal and stuff, I would be like, what do you think, mom and dad? You know, just, yeah, just to kind definitely. of get their input. Yes, and yes. my parents were clever enough not to be overbearing. Yeah. But to put those little pointers in, like, yeah. bear in mind this, bear yes. in mind that, yeah. right? 
um, and also to do the due diligence of researching who the person was, getting the references. My dad wasn't going to, like, you know, not be involved in that. Yeah, you have to, definitely. So I I do think that sometimes uh, in in that regard, you know, just like it takes a village to raise a child, I I think it takes a family to kind of make a marriage. I agree with you, and I think if the family is enlightened in that they understand that it is a relationship between, first of all, two people who are going to start their own household eventually, right? And we come from that standpoint that it's these two first. So let's make sure they're compatible. And then let's make sure we've ticked other boxes that make this this couple fit in with the wider picture. Because for sure, like you said... If you know, if the if the family can be more embracing and more open to, you know, well, firstly, I think families need to be a lot less superficial themselves, uh, mm-hmm. and really, they also need to detach themselves from certain markers that we've had for a very long time that really do not bear any any don't have any bearing on the actual success of the marriage, because just because somebody is from your village, that doesn't mean she's going to get on with your son doesn't mean she's a nice person. Yeah. doesn't mean he's a good guy. It doesn't mean mm. that they will like each other. It means almost nothing. And for, I guess, the, the problem will, or the issue will cease to be an issue, really, because, you know, so many of our generation aren't even connected with the village back home. But I think what I'm, what I'm saying is, you know, there's certain levels, I guess, that we want to look at. Mm. One of them being the compatibility of the spouses and then the compatibility with the wider family. And, you know, and then they, then you have a situation where everyone's on board. Hmm. And when everyone's on board, the couple like each other, their families are on board, now you're set up for success. Because if you guys have any problems, the family's there to support Support you. you. They want you to work. You know, they're rooting for you as a team. And they will be there to support you and help you through, you know, any navigation that you need to do. And also when the children come along, you know, Inshallah, they're still, yeah. you know, available to you to, to get advice and to get solace and to get childcare, hopefully. And, you know, <laughs> but, but really be there as a support network. And I think those marriages have probably got the best chance of succeeding. But the family has to be on their best behavior as well. And that means not being superficial, not being judgmental, not being close-minded and not being right. selfish. Absolutely. And that takes maturity yep. and uh, foresight on, on yep. their, uh, uh, yeah, any them as well yeah yeah, yeah. okay so Jacques Lachan for that Naima and uh, let's go back to your mum <laughs> back to my mum um and your dad because it's intriguing to me that I understand like that you uh like you seem to identify more with the African side right well your dad was African too right but why is white African yeah yeah uh so did he have like a South African accent was he yeah Sorry, I'm just trying to yes. picture them. He grew know? up in South Africa. Right. Uh, he's, 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 you know, obviously his ancestors, ancestors are Scottish, um, but he grew up in South Africa. But my dad is an Africanist, so um, it made sense. Like, he pretty much integrated himself into my mother's culture. So he, they had a traditional marriage. Uh, he spoke her language. They spoke Zulu together, then spoke Kosa. And yeah. just he was, he integrated into African culture. So I guess that's partly why I don't Proper really... Proper lefty. Yeah, yeah, it's the Allah, best kind. Allah. But yeah, so, yeah, I mean, then tell tell us about him. You you've still got you know a relationship with him. Mashallah. Yeah, my dad is uh 
yeah, he's just, just one of my heroes, I guess. I am a 100% daddy's girl. Um, he's an intellectual, an academic, an uh, a theatre well, person. Sure. He's an author, you know, university professor, uh, a Marxist. And he he just had a profound effect on me as as a child. I mean, we were always close. And I just always wanted his approval. And he was one of those fathers who was quite hard to please. So I remember once I came home with 98% in my test and he said, what happened to the, the other 2%? 2%? Oh, no. Really? Um, yeah, he did. Uh, wow. So he had, you know, really quite high expectations of us. Um, but mm -hmm. on the other hand, he's very anti-establishmentarian. So he did not approve of me coming to the UK for university. He wanted me to stay in Africa, stay in Zimbabwe and really contribute to the cultural life of Zimbabwe there mm. um you know and and not and not uh, and not leave to go to you know ruddy England um but um mashallah even though it was difficult for him to accept me becoming Muslim initially uh he's like now one of my biggest fans he's always defending Islam to other people and he is a huge proponent of Niqab and polygamy. So there you go. Really? Yes. MashaAllah. Yes, he is. We need to invite him on. Yes, he yeah. will have to when he comes. But he said he swore he will never come to England again. So that and might is be that? problematic. Is that, is that the whole Scottish thing? It is with, the Scottish yeah. thing. And also England as a colonial power and as an imperialist engine. No, he's just anti-England completely. Mm. Yeah. So you might not be able to get him into the, the, the podcast. <laughs> We'll have to do like a satellite link up Something thing. like that. And so you, you lost your mom. Uh, how old were you? No, I, my son, um, Obeid, was about one. So that would be 2003, 2004. Mm. So yeah, it was a fair, fair while ago. And I think the for me, the, the biggest, I realize now sort of one of the, the biggest sadnesses for me really is that my mom never got to see from my sister's lips come out. Mm. And so she missed all of that. She missed from my sister's lips. She missed, um, you know, Sister's Magazine. She missed, I guess, who, who I ended up, you know, who I became in the end. Because she felt sad for me. And my dad did too, you know, felt sad for me when I became Muslim because she thought that I had had so much potential and she, she just thought I was an amazing girl. And uh, she felt that when I became Muslim, you know, I started wearing a qab, jilbab, socks and sandals, you know, and all of that. And she, I think she just felt like that's that's it for her. You know, she got married, she got pregnant, she had a baby. Now she's in this Muslim thing and that's it. So I guess, qadrallah, but that's one of the sadnesses for me that she never did get to see me shine, I guess. Um, but mm. alhamdulillah, life's like that sometimes. Alhamdulillah, your father has... Yes. Been there for that, so. yeah. Yeah, my father came with me he was my mahram on my south africa tour he ended up giving a talk in the masjid Really? So wow. these yeah, these high school boys, uh, I was talking what to the about? girls about me becoming Muslim. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I was talking to the girls and then they said, oh, you know, this is uh, Naima B. Robert's dad. He's going to say some words to you. So boys, you know, give him salam. And then he stood up and, you know, he had to just talk about me becoming Muslim. I don't know what he said, but it was so funny. It was so funny because, yeah, at the time he was completely agnostic, but he managed to toe the line and you know say something that was you know relevant and appropriate so i was very proud of him may allah guide him i mean i mean um i heard malcolm gladwell you know the author he mm -hmm. was also talking about this topic of like um growing up in a place where you you are the majority 
Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And because yeah. he was, I think his mother is Jamaican. Oh, right? I didn't know that. Yeah. His mother was Jamaican. His dad was English. Oh, I didn't yeah. know. And uh, so he was being asked about, like, you know, uh, he, like, he had a very positive childhood. Mm-hmm. And his mother, he was talking about his mother and how she was just really confident and never really saw racism or the color of her skin as an issue, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And he, he made the comment that now that he's lived in America and he's seen the African-American experience, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he thinks there is a big difference between the people who grew up in lands where they were the majority, yeah. so Africans who mm-hmm. emigrate to America and even Jamaicans, mm-hmm. right? And people who are the minority. And yeah. He felt that, you know, it has an impact on your psychology, so... I think it impacts on everybody's psychology. You mm. imagine Romani... Oh, right. Think of Romani children mm. who... Well, Romanis are typically minorities everywhere, so that's probably not a very good example. But, you know, any minority in the West, you compare the young people who grow up in that country versus the young people from back home. Completely different. Because there's a sense of belonging mm. and normality normality yeah you are just normal you're just the norm you know and whether you're black or you're brown or whatever it is you're the norm and it's not even an issue it's not even something you pay pay attention to per se back home we have other things that we pay attention to right like which tribe you're from or you know which village you came from originally or whatever which religion Mm. but um as for racial identity Mm. it's not even a question mark it's just Mm. something that's normal and it's just not even you don't literally you hardly pay attention to it and that gives you a sense of just calm and rootedness that growing up in the west as a sometimes despised minority that's going to completely change your out you know your outlook so if you imagine you know young pakistani and indian children caribbean kids african kids who were, grew up in the uk in the 70s and 80s for example when racism was very open when there were no black role models or Asian role models, when there were no books with black and Asian characters, you know, when the only time you ever heard about black and Asian people was in a criminal context, a bit similar to how Muslims are today, you can imagine the effect that would have had on their psyche, the shame, but I think the humiliation. The prouder you your know? parents were mm. and more the secure, the, as secure as they were in their, um, uh, their own skin and background, I think passes on to the kids because I, I was just thinking like I know it sounds a bit funny but you know the whole Bollywood culture right mm-hmm. and Indian clothes Indian yes. like yeah. I think having had that you know growing up mm. just there in the background even mm. if we weren't fully like in yeah. it but just the fact that Indian especially like they do feel proud of their culture mm. they do think their clothes are better they do think that no, <laughs> their food is better <laughs> their food is better yeah we do have yeah, that yeah. psychology right and yes. our parents obviously grew up as the not as minorities mm. right i do think that that passes on as well you know like, i think there's a difference between mm. how indians and pakistanis experience the the immigrant experience in yeah. the uk do you think mm. there is uh, compared to other immigrants no indians and pakistanis the two of them oh um I'm not sure, to be honest, mm, because okay. um, I, I've been with, like, growing up, I've mm. been with Indians and Pakistanis, and I never really noticed a much of a difference. Okay. But maybe, you know, they might say otherwise. I mean, all our family friends were Pakistanis mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Urdu-speaking mainly. Yeah, so. yeah. 
I think that probably the parents having that pride and almost a cultural chauvinism, really, you know, yeah. like, you know, we are better, you know, gore this and gore that. And, you know, and I get that. But I think with... I don't know about that. Well, but but you know what I mean? It is like... But know, it's like the whole thing of like when you, when you were called a packy for the first yeah, time, yeah. right? And you'd come home and dad, they, somebody called me a packy, right? And dad was like, well, that's a, that's a good thing. Like, okay. <laughs> I was like, is it? He said, huh? Bark. Bark means clean, right? That's Pakistan. Dad is doing a bit of Pakistan remix is there. The, is the clean land of the clean. That's what okay, it means, right? Okay. The land of purity. Right. Yeah? So in, he sort of that. flipped it around. and was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah dad was clever. It's true. So yeah, do you see, clever. like, you, you'd, you'd sort of think, yeah, see, they think they're insulting us. Yes. They're actually calling us pure, you know? Wow, look at that. I didn't so, even know that. Yeah, so wow. stuff like that, you yeah. know? Um, yeah. There was stuff like that because there was a lot of racism yeah. in the eighties and seventies. Uh, yeah. I think was even worse. I'm but, sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But alhamdulillah, you know, every just you know just to kind of divert the conversation a little bit. I think there will be challenges with every generation, and there always have been challenges. You know that uh, I think is from Dickens. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, it's always. The best of times and the worst of times, if you think about it, depending on your perspective, depending on who you are within that context. And I think, you know, I'm grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for all the good things that we've experienced in our lives as Muslims in the UK, while cognizant of the fact that we've had our fair share of challenges. Mm. But again, every challenge is an opportunity to rise. And I want to just reiterate that every challenge is an opportunity to grow and to rise and to to evolve really and i think that we have been doing that and um you know whether it's a personal challenge or it's a societal challenge allah knows that he will never he has already told us he will not burden us more than we can bear and so every time that there is you know whatever the challenge is i think it's always good to remember that allah will never let us go under with that as long as we believe that we can rise to this challenge and that we have the capacity to 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 bear whatever it is and to get the good at the end of it you know to come out of that trial or that test better I think that that's really important to to look at because sometimes we can get into the habit of kind of like sitting down and just naming all the difficulties and you know like so many things are going wrong you know this ummah is this and da 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 you know like everything's falling apart right but I think that probably people throughout history have had been able to have that conversation look at the first world war for example look how many millions died in the first world war for nothing Mm-hmm. they could have had that conversation then i think it's throughout yeah. history you know it's throughout right. history you could have been sitting there talking about the number of people who lost their lives senselessly under a b c d regime and on the other hand scientific achievements or amazing works of art or flourishing of faiths right happening at the same time which is so crazy and i see that happening with us and i think the next generation will have something similar they will have their amazing flourishing and their amazing blossoming and their amazing growth and they will have challenges and trials and fitna mm. at the end of the day that they have to come to terms with because hey hayat dunya right hashtag hayat dunya you know this is the sunnah of this life so i feel like on the one hand when i think about the the issues that we face as individuals as sisters as brothers as families as communities yeah. you know i i get quite passionate about it but then 
I'm glad I can get passionate about it because it means I still got some fight in me. Yeah. You know, there's mm -hmm. still some fire there. There's still some hope there that we can overcome this. The worst for me is when we accept to be victims and we just accept to be at the mercy of fate and mm -hmm. like, you know, like just give up. Like there's just there's nothing more to say, nothing more to do, nothing more to fight. Just accept it as it is, shrug your shoulders and say, well, I guess that's the end of that. And I, and I feel like as long as we keep noticing, as long as we keep paying attention, as long as we keep thinking of solutions, making dua, being hopeful, you understand? Like, and keeping that vision that we have top of mind and working towards that vision. If Allah takes our life in that state, alhamdulillah, and I think never falling into a victim mentality. Yes. Because there are plenty of people that, you know, I'm, I'm at SOAS at the moment, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, like, I would say there's quite a heavy uh, kind of leftist uh, influence there, mm -hmm. right? You can feel it like in the lectures sometimes, right? Um, and sometimes the way the discourse goes, it kind of encourages me to look at myself as a victim, mm -hmm. right? You know the whole intersectionality thing. And yeah, you know, right? yeah. So I'm a woman. Yeah, oh, you're, you're done. <laughs> you I'm are so done. Apparently I'm brown, so I'm disadvantaged. Yeah. So I'm a minority, I'm disadvantaged. But you know when people are talking at me like that? I will never accept that. I'm sitting there thinking, wait a minute, who, who told you I'm disadvantaged? I will never accept that. I never mm -hmm. grew up thinking I was disadvantaged. Yeah. I grew up next to white people yeah. who I consider disadvantaged. <laughs> like, I'm not... Joking, right? No, so, I hear you and I know what you're talking about. Right. Yes. And I thought, wow, you know, alhamdulillah, I've got parents, I've got Islam, I've got... But you see, this I'm rich, is, yeah. I'm, I'm, I've got everything. This is the amazing thing. Because you didn't see yourself as disadvantaged, because in your head you did not believe the narrative that you're disadvantaged, guess what? Your reality began to reflect what you believed in your head, which is that you're not at a disadvantage. It's, we are in the same boat. Muslim, widow... Divorcee, rare, right. five kids, niqab wearer, whatever the case may be. Someone out there will say to me, you're disadvantaged because of that. You won't get ahead because of that. You know, you, you, you're yeah. a victim of so and so and so because of that. And I'm just that. like, forget you. Forget it. I'll never you accept that. You don't get to tell me no. that I'm disadvantaged. You created this uh, kind of, uh, you know, construct, yeah. right, of race. You cre created this construct of I, I don't necessarily see myself as a brown person. That's not mm. my that's not my primary that's identity, really right? Yeah. And I don't see myself as Indian. That's not my primary identity. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a Muslim yeah. for me, right? That that's my primary thing that I associate myself with. And so sometimes I find it quite uh, you know uh, funny. It is funny yeah, actually yeah. that people who think they're doing you a favor. Yes, I under yeah I know are what you mean. Yeah, putting you down, but also at the same time I think it's quite unjust because. There are white people out there, right, who are suffering. There are white <laughs> oh, people who are things. very disadvantaged. Yes. Right? Like I, I who don't have the language to describe that disadvantage because and on paper, yeah, on paper they're privileged, right? That's they're really interesting. Yeah. So does that mean you don't believe in white privilege? I can't believe we went there. But yeah, I'm asking you anyway. I think... As a, as a, as a concept, do you not believe in it? I need to look into it more, mm. yeah, mm. before I make any kind of comment on that but i definitely think a lot of the time what we call the white privilege is majority privilege yeah right dominant culture i call so it dominant culture privilege yeah there's a dominant culture the yeah they will they, be privileged have yeah. you seen this sketch um goodness gracious me sketch right where the white guy is the minority 
and the Indians are like around the table yeah. and they're like the daily, what do they call it? I don't know what they called it. It's the Daily Mail, but it's yeah. Indian the Indian version. Mail. Yeah. And they just won't pronounce his name right, you know. His name is Jonathan. They just won't. They, they call him like, you know. Jonathan? Yeah. They do everything, you know. Yeah. So they sort of flip to the whole yeah, thing, yeah. right? But it's quite funny because actually, like, a white person in, uh, you know, in a place where he, he is the minority. Yeah. I'm not saying he wouldn't, due to colonialism and due to the history, yeah, that, that he wouldn't be treated specially, right? I'm not saying that. But... You know, he would still be at a disadvantage. He would still be at a disadvantage. The majority yeah. culture yeah, yeah. that makes, um, and the majority culture here happens to be yeah. white, right? Yeah, so, I think he would still be at a disadvantage because he just doesn't have the upper hand. He doesn't know the language. He doesn't right. understand the culture. He doesn't know his way around. He doesn't know the traditions. He doesn't know the nuances of language and how to read people and, you know, and the cultural cues and all of that. So for sure, he would definitely have to feel at a disadvantage. But I just want to pick up on something that you said mm. about identity. And, and for me, I am me. Yeah. That's my primary identity. Mm. I happen to be Muslim and female and, you know, uh, this, that, this, that, this, that. But the culmination of all of that is that I'm me, uniquely me, and nobody yes. else is me. And no one can take my place. No one can take your place. No one can take any of the readers or listeners or viewers' places, right? And mm. so we choose how we want to show up in the world. If I want to show up as a victim, it's a choice. I can choose to believe what everyone's telling me because most of us can use any of our identities because we're all at intersections now anyway, right? We're all intersectional, every one of us, subhanAllah. Do you hate that word? Really? Why? Because <laughs> I feel like it's being forced onto everyone and there's a certain uh, kind of language, hmm. you know, especially in the university space. Okay. There's a certain kind of uh, language that if you depart from it mm. you are a kind of uh, seen as a what's the word a blasphemer you know almost but the thing is i mean for me the intersection so say for example in your case you're indian mm. and you're muslim so mm. one could say that those two identities are are aligned Okay, that there's not necessarily that much, although, of course, there's Hindu nationalism and everything, but there are many, many Indian Muslims. Okay, so that's there's no contradiction there. Once you involve being British in that, which I believe you consider yourself to be, mm -hmm. you are at an intersection because being British means one thing, quote unquote, and being Indian and Muslim might mean something different. So but you that's are for every single human being. I know, but that's what I was saying. We're um, all at intersections. <laughs> even white people, you know, are well, at intersections. Would you say that, though? Give me an example of that. Okay, oh. because there are an infinite number of uh, categories you could put people in. But are they who at gets odds to decide, with each other? Who gets to decide the categories? That's I think that it's whether they're at odds with each other or not. That's mm. how I kind of define whether you're at an intersection. You because could be if a, poor, a poor white person. You but there's be those being a white person and being poor are not misaligned. They're not an intersection because there are poor white people. Do you know what I mean? Like, there, there isn't like a contradiction there between being poor and being white. Because but there that's are poor assuming white that there are contradictions then. Um, well, I, for me, for example, I'm black and I'm Muslim. And we've been talking a lot about the intersection between being mm -hmm. black and Muslim, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, for me, the intersectionality is that as a Muslim, I have certain priorities, okay? And I, have, and I show up in a particular way in the world and I'm seen a certain way by the world. As a black person, 
there are other things that come into play and there are other issues that come into play and some of those are found within my faith community as well so we've been talking yeah, about racism in the community etc so in a way it's like for my children they can go my children are black their father's Ghanaian they can go into Muslim spaces and not feel welcome because of the color of their skin and where we live that happens a lot because right. if you go into a dominant you know, Indian masjid yeah. where the imam is speaking Gujarati and everyone else speaks Gujarati. You are not welcome there on the basis of your faith because you're an outsider on the basis of your culture. race and your culture, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, so, but then equally, if my boys go into a black environment where there's loads of black boys there, they will find that there are certain things that although they look like everyone else, they don't necessarily fit in there either because they have a different set of values, they have a different set of, you know, norms and a different belief system. So for th that is an intersection because not only are my boys discriminated against or maybe excluded, not necessarily discriminated, but excluded in certain Muslim spaces, but they also show up in the wider world as a black boy. And being a black boy in this society has particular connotations. Mm -hmm. Certain expectations are made of you. Certain stereotypes people have of you. You know, you're expected to speak a certain way, to have a certain attitude. If you do or you don't, people judge you on that basis. So they are very much intersectional. And not only are they black boys, but they're also African. And they grew up in Egypt. So they're not like black British boys either. Does that make sense? So they have so many intersections. I mean, like I said, I do think that... I guess it depends on if you consider those different aspects to be a disadvantage necessarily. No. And if we give that narrative, and I feel like at the moment, mm. that is the narrative. All right, okay, I'm, I'm mm. operating from a space of mm. diversity and inclusion. And so for me, it's more a case of my intersecting identities are what make me unique and powerful, hmm. not what makes me disadvantaged. I don't accept that. That's what I'm saying is that I will not accept someone saying to me, because you're Muslim, you're disadvantaged. Because you're a woman, you're disadvantaged. Because you're mixed race or you're African or you're a divorcee or a widow or whatever, you're disadvantaged. I won't accept that. I consider those intersecting identities as what makes me unique and powerful. Powerful to do what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put me on this earth to do. But then why can't we just say people are individuals? Because that's exactly what that is. Well, in the sense yeah, that's that, true. In the sense that there are infinite numbers of ways yeah. you could you could uh, divide a person, right? And in the different boxes that yeah. you want to put them in. Anyway, I just think that, you know, um, we need to be careful, like, uh, uh, especially when we're in spaces where other people do have ideologies. They have yeah. political ideologies and other ideologies that they... Uh, kind of have become the norm and then yeah. we without even realizing it mm. kind of adopt it mm. without necessarily and that's why I'm I'm trying to be careful like I'd like to look into it a bit more before yeah, fair I, enough. Mm, I make mm, a, mm, mm. a comment but the, the aspect of it I've been exposed to doesn't sit well with doesn't me sit well with um, you. Yeah. because I feel like it's making me conscious of something that I wasn't really conscious of that's so interesting you see because in the world you're talking about being conscious is the point. It's like when uh, you're growing up as a Muslim, for example, I'm sure you had this experience. I'm sure there was a time when you didn't know anything about Gaza and you didn't know anything about the Palestinian cause and you mm. didn't know anything about Chechnya and about Bosnia and all of that, right? But at a certain point, people became conscious yeah. of these injustices. Mm -hmm. And 
then your view of everything kind of changes because now you're not, you're, well, you're conscious now. You're no longer blind to kind of what's happening on a geopolitical level. You are now aware of it and you're conscious and it will color the way that you see things. It will, it changes your paradigm of the world. And I think that that is similar to everything. So if at one point in your life you didn't recognize discrimination and you become conscious to it, now your eyes are open. If at one point you didn't recognize racism because you just were unconscious, maybe it was even happening, you didn't, weren't aware of it. It's like me. When I, work, when I walk in the street, I don't pay attention to people. So I don't often see people looking at me or, or kind of reacting to me in any particular way because I consciously don't pay attention. And that's because I want to just be able to walk in the world whole and powerful and strong and not be impacted by what's happening on the outside. Mm -hmm. someone who can be observing me can see what's actually happening. Oh, those people were pointing or those people were laughing or those people gave you a funny look or whatever. Yeah. But I choose to be unconscious of that because it allows me to be who I want to be in this world. And maybe what you're talking about is that. It's like, I'd rather be unconscious if being conscious makes me feel like a victim. Does that, does that, does that make sense? Do you think that that's what's happening? Um, maybe. Uh, I don't think I want to be unconscious of injustice, mm. you know? It's not that, it's just that I am going to push back against yeah. somebody putting me into boxes yes. and categorizations mm. because of their ideology and their sure. political uh, kind of agenda, yeah. right? And, yeah, 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 I hear that. And I'm just supposed to just like accept it because... Which way do you want me to go? Because they support BDS, you know, yeah, type yeah, thing, yeah? yeah? So I think as Muslims, yeah. we have to be really conscious, mm. you know, that what are we just adopting without questioning it mm -hmm. because it sounds sounds all right you know? yeah but yeah. okay but what is the natural consequence of it yeah is it causing more division is it making us more less united you know um I, I is know, the something... end goal to be united you think as muslims no as a society as a society yeah because definitely what you're talking about the intersections and the you know white yeah. privilege etc you know the end goal is not for unity the end yeah. goal is for justice or to address, or to address injustice. Yeah, yeah, well, that's what is you know on paper that's what it is. Mm. But do you, do you, do you dispute that? Do you think that might not be what it's all about? Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's what it's really about. Okay. Um, I think, uh, and I think, for us as Muslims, uh, we should really look at the framework that Islam's given us, and if that framework doesn't overemphasize certain things mm -hmm. I think we should strive not to overemphasize those things and if there's injustice we need to sort that injustice out mm -hmm. it's not that we don't address injustice mm -hmm. but we don't need to adopt the language and ideology of external people to um, to kind of solve that sure, injustice sure. Mm -hmm. and I think we we're at peril if we do that because mm -hmm. sometimes we don't see the natural consequence yeah. of that and the fact that somebody's actually trying to fit us into their little mm -hmm. Uh, you know, world and narrative. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think caution. I guess. Is, I guess yes. Yeah, caution is always good with um, most things. There's something I really wanted to explore with you, and so I'm going to go straight into it because, um, you know, I don't want this to not be part of the discussion. Jazakallah um, khairan. Uh, so you, were, you're a successful writer. Uh, you had these wonderful books, you know, mashallah, my kids have benefited from your books so much. Like, I remember the first book I saw of yours was the Swirling Hijab, first children's book. And I didn't even know it was you when you <laughs> authored it. 
And I just feel, I was like, oh, this is so amazing. Cute, this right? This is just so amazing. Mashallah. I'm going to get, my daughter is going to yeah. love hijab, you know, mm. from just reading this book and looking at how, looking at it from that confident, mm-hmm. owning it, you know, yeah. perspective. So, um, so you, you'd, you'd had all of that success and you, you, you had children, you were married and you were living in Egypt. And I visited you and I saw, mashallah, you're living in a very comfortable um way you know alhamdulillah Alhamdulillah. seemed to me (laughs) yeah my salon was good too and you cooked good food (laughs) it was a good salon and then i heard i was sitting in london and uh, i've forgotten exactly how but i i i think it was on social media Hmm. that i saw that suddenly your husband had gone into hospital and i remember those days like we were praying so much yeah. and then eventually he passed away mm. and yeah. I, f- I felt like it was a gut punch you know like mm. uh, and that's little old me in England right like feeling like that for you um, talk about that tell us what was it like what does that mean and what did it mean I think at the time Uh, Anybody who was following me on social media remembers that I wrote a lot of poetry. And one of the poems that I wrote was um, All Changed, I think it was called. And it's really about the axis of your world just tilting, um, where everything has changed, changed utterly. Um, Obviously, it's something that we didn't expect. You know, there were, you know, no signs that, not really, not at the time anyway. I look back. You know, he hadn't been well for a good few months. But, um, you know, nobody expected that to happen um, because we just found him in the morning. He was, you know, semi-conscious and uh, he had had a stroke. And um, and then within and then he went into a coma and then within two weeks he had passed away. And I suppose um, I am grateful for those two weeks because it allowed me to work through my emotions um, and one of the things that I that I really remember from that time is just an overwhelming sense of gratitude. And, and some people don't believe me when I say this or they think that it's weird. Um, but I had a, you know, I had a good 15 year run with him, Allah Yirhamu. And he was a lovely man, mashallah, you know. And, you know, my kids asked me, you know, if, if daddy hadn't died, would you guys still be together? And I'm like, 100%, because we were just like hand and glove, you know. And um, so the gratitude was for everything that we had had, the good, the bad, the highs, the lows, you know. And and I knew because of being in a Muslim community that that is, it's rare. Yeah, there are people that we know who are happily married, but I knew a lot of people who were not happily married and who, you know, some people are married for their whole lives and never taste even the tenth of what we had. So I was grateful to Allah for that because he granted me that for those 15 years. So there was really never a moment where I was like, why me? Why now? This is unfair. It really was, that never crossed my mind. It was really like, you know what, Allah, thank you for the 15 years because they were amazing, you know? And if I never have that again, I've had enough, you know what I mean? It's like, I've had my, my cup full and I'm grateful for that. 
So, so that was a huge thing. And then, of course, there were questions about his state because after the, the stroke, there was brain damage and they thought maybe he would come, you know, he would wake up again. And so there was the whole conversation as to what's going to happen next. He had his business that he was running in Egypt. Then there was the question of, you know, if he did wake up and he was brain damaged, what would that look like? What would that mean? Would we have to leave Egypt? For sure. We'd have to have gone back to the UK. Um, you know, he may never be able to talk. He may not recognize us. He may not be able to walk. Is that what we want for him? How would he feel about that? And all of that, all those thoughts. And then some people, oh, and this is, I'm just being honest with you here. Some people were, and the thing is, I just want to say, you know, for everybody who did make dua for us in that time, I just want to say, may Allah reward you with khair because there was such a huge outpouring of dua and support and sympathy. It was crazy. Um, and I will never, never forget that. And even just the kindness of strangers letting me stay in their apartment so I could be close to the hospital to go every day and just so, so many amazing experiences, subhanAllah. And, um, what I wanted to say was uh, the, um, the the outpouring that came from everybody, and this 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 kind of this warmth, this wave of sympathy that came. Some people thought that sending me stories of relatives who had been in a coma for three months or a year or three years and who had woken up, they thought that that was inspiring for me. But actually, it was the least inspiring thing possible because. I didn't want him to be in a coma for six months. I didn't want him to be in a coma for a year or for three years and for our lives to be on hold for three months, six months, a year, three years, five years, 10 years. Someone sent me a thing and said, oh, I know so-and-so and they were in a coma for 10 years and Marshall after that they woke up. And I was like, I was a billah. I don't want that for him. And I don't want that for us. So Allah, keep him in khair or take him in khair. Because also we had just come back from Umrah as a family he had taken us all for Umrah the year before we had done Hajj together. So he had done Hajj twice. And I really felt if Allah, you want to take him now, this is as good a time as any. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. So it really was a case of he is not mine. He belongs to Allah. And if Allah chooses to take him back, I respect that. You know, and I accept. And that really was my attitude throughout it all. I accept first that if you wish to take him back, then you have every right to do so and I will be in gratitude forever for what you gave me while he was here. That's the first thing. And second thing, I know that you've left me here for a reason. I know that if he passes and I'm left here mm -hmm. in charge of these children, in charge of this work, in charge of this company, there's a reason for that. And there is a huge wisdom and barakah in it for me. So I never for one minute thought, what am I going to do now? What's going to happen with my life? I was like, Allah's got something planned for me. Allah's got greatness planned for us. And I used to tell that to my kids. So Allah is going to keep us. We are going to be okay. And we're going to be better than okay. We are going to do... And I, I remember when I was in Malaysia for the Ilm Arts Festival. And uh, I read some poetry. And I, and I did uh, like a presentation. It's a huge stadium. And everybody was there. Oh my gosh, subhanAllah. Amir Suleiman, Peter Gould, Peter Saunders. Oh, what's his name Baba Ali like all these Muslim artists, like Muslim. all these Muslim artists mm. were there subhanAllah and uh, Muslim Bilal uh, just everybody uh, anyway and I did my presentation and I said everybody who's here who's going through a trial who's been through something and is almost at the edge at the brink know that you're still standing for a reason 
and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not forsake you. And so if you've gone through a trial, but you're still holding on, I want you to stand up. And I want you to say, I'm still standing. And they did. And I will never forget that moment. I see Amir Suleiman because he's tall. You know, so I remember him. And he was like, oh, we're still standing. And it was just this, this celebration of life. And I feel like at the time, so many sisters reached out to me who had le lost their husbands as well. And, you know, so, you know, we, we were talking and, you know, they were talking to me and I was kind of talking to them. And I noticed a trend. And the trend was for many women, when their husband passes away, they feel lost because they don't know what they're supposed to be doing now. And there's this sense that life will never be good again. They'll never be happy again. And they're kind of literally just waiting for their time, even if they have kids. I remember many of them who would tell me, like, the only reason I get up in the morning is for my kids. If it wasn't for the fact that I had kids, I would stay in bed all the time. And I, and I just don't understand that. Because myself, as an individual, I know I have worth. And I have work to do in mm -hmm. this world, you know? Like, mm -hmm. Allah left me here. There must be something that I need to do. There must be some work that is, that is waiting for me. Some purpose that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has for me. And I need to be prepared to do it. I need to be ready to show up. And so, after the idda and everything, and you take your time in the idda to, to mourn and to cleanse and to heal, uh, I was just ready to start living. And I was just like... Allah didn't leave me here for a foolish purpose. I'm here for a reason. And I don't want to um, miss out on whatever barakah Allah has got planned for me, even though I loved my husband dearly. And even though we were together for 15 years and we had five kids together, there is still life. And that has been my reality because that's what I expected. And so alhamdulillah, that's been, that's been my reality. So would you say that you went through phases does grief come in phases or because, you know, what you've just described sounds like a real, like the fact that you had that mindset sounds like a real blessing. You know, um, I, I don't want, ever want to proclaim to be like a, an expert on grief mm. because I think everybody grieves differently. Mm. I grieved through my poetry. That was how I processed my feelings. And, you know, I, I, write, I write about it in my upcoming book. And actually, I, it was very difficult for me to write about my husband in my upcoming book, uh, Show Up, because it just feels like such a long time ago. And I felt like I had moved on from those feelings. But in order to be able to write about it, I had to go back there again. I had to go back to the time when I couldn't sleep in our bed because that's where we had found him. So I was sleeping on the bunk bed, uh, you know, in my boy's room. Uh, you know, I remember the time because I, some people like to keep everything. I didn't want every, anything. I just wanted to keep a few clothes. But because I couldn't go into that room because we had designed that bedroom together and had it made together. So I told my people to sell it. And I remember when the lady came um, to dismantle it, because that's what they do. Uh, they dismantle everything. And I remember that I came to the door and I saw everything broken up to be taken out. And I just broke down, you know, I was just like, yeah, I just, I just broke down and I had to like move out of the doorway and just go into the other room because it really is, you know, I remember I wrote a poem about this uh, and maybe we can share it with, uh, you know, share it with the, the readers at some point. But, you know, I remember one of the kids broke one of his mugs and I wrote a poem about it. And I said, you know, 
one of the kids dropped your mug today. It felt like another piece of you leaving this earth. And so it really is like this process of letting go. And some people don't. Some people prefer to keep everything and preserve that. My coping mechanism was to let go. And to, to be able to let him go, I had to let those things go. And maybe I did it really just on the spur of the moment. I don't know. Because then afterwards, when I came back to our flat after two years, I had been thinking of selling the house. This is the one in Egypt. And by that time, I had remarried and everything. But when I came back to the house, I looked around and I saw we had designed that house together because it was a flat in Rahab and we had had the plans and we had got every the builders to come in and remodeled the whole place. And I came in and I said, we're never selling this house. This was your dad's house. This was our house that we created together. And inshallah, we're never selling this house because this should be part of our family for always. I don't need the bed couldn't sleep on the bed anyway because it was just too it was too close when visitors would come they slept in that room I couldn't go in there so I didn't want the the bed I didn't want the wardrobe I, we kept some of the clothes for his sons but most of the stuff I gave to charity but I said this house that we created together this will stay in our family inshallah because he put so much of himself into it you know and I remember just thinking that and I, when, I, when I was running his business, which is another story I tell in the book, um, a lot of people don't know that I had to take over his, his company, which mm. I didn't even know about. I didn't even know what work they did. And then I had to step in after six days as the new CEO, 300 employees. Subhanallah, which was another, another like stretch, you know. Um, you know, in my id that I was going, you. that was a stretch. That was a stretch. But again, 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 always going back to that yaqeen. Allah, you wouldn't have put me here if I couldn't handle it. If you were not going to help me get through this, you would not have put me in this situation. So I have to trust that and believe that I've got this. You know? Thank you. Exactly, exactly. Same with my children. And I remember when I decided to, to leave, to, to let go of that company, a friend said to me, your husband, Allah, biggest legacy is his children. So if the business is... Is, is hampering your ability to be there for his children, then we have to let the business go and focus on the children because that's his legacy. That's the piece of him that will live on, just like all of us. Mm -hmm. The piece of us that will live on once we return to Allah is whatever we've implanted in our kids, right? And that continues through their bloodline, inshallah. So it was, um, you know, one of those like pivotal moments I guess um, in my life and I'm just grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because the mindset wasn't something that I actively cultivated Allah just put it there I just instinctively had that response to be grateful for what was to know that better is coming to know that there's a wisdom behind all of this there's a purpose behind all of this and to live that reality and not accept any other any other interpretations mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying because yeah. we can interpret everything in a good way or a bad way in a negative right. way or a positive way in a right. way that is empowering or disempowering absolutely everything so i chose alhamdulillah by allah's grace to interpret everything in a way that empowered me to continue to have faith to have hope to to trust in allah and his plan for me as an individual so I'm grateful to Allah for that. Oh, subhanAllah, Naima, you've made, I'm sure you've made, you know, the viewers and listeners weep as well, just like you've brought tears to our eyes. And I think a part of that is 
I think there's something in us human beings, you know, when we see another human being tried with something um, that we can't imagine ourselves being tried yeah. with mm. and then seeing them come out, you know, mm. and, and, and with that kind of mindset, I think it, it's just so inspiring and it's so, I think all of us hope that were we ever to face a struggle or, you know, in life mm. and struggles in life are inevitable, you know, you live long enough, you know, yeah, yeah. something, something's going to come along. Right? You are going to lose someone somewhere sometime for sure. That is an inevitability, isn't it? But Unless you know, we die too young to do that. You know, you mentioned that certain things were not helpful, right, um, yeah. to you. Um, I'm just thinking from the perspective of, like, somebody who was listening and observing, you know, you go through this um, experience. Um, it, it can be really hard, can't it, for, it, yeah, it for, for people around you, close mm. around you, but also further afield. To know, like, because I, like, I felt quite paralysed. Um, I felt like I wanted to pick up the phone, and I thought, well, I'm just going to be taking her away from her kids. Yeah. Uh, or you know, I might be inconveniencing her. She'll feel obliged to answer. And who, yeah. who am I anyway? You know, mm-hmm. I had those kind of thoughts in my head. Like, who am I? Yeah. I? I don't even live near her. You know, there's probably people around her that are. But then I thought, but maybe what if there aren't? <laughs> what if I'm not doing my duty? You know, there was these. There are these, and even those people who sent you those stories they were trying to help i get it but i had people who traveled to come and see me subhanallah and i'll never forget allah they know who they are and i and i ask allah to reward them and i hope that i would be able to do the same for them because you know one one sister rang me a beautiful friend and she she rang she said i'm coming you know when is good and I was like, no, you don't have to come. Come on, you don't have to come. My aunt came, uh, you know, a, a friend and her daughters and her mum came because they're very close family friends. And and I had, you know, like another one, two, three during my idda who just came just to be with me. And I think just so that this is something helpful to, to, to the listeners and the viewers, when it comes to somebody who's in mourning, mm. the the most important thing is to be really sensitive and listen and ask them what they need. Don't assume that you know. Ask them how you can help, how you can be there for them. Sometimes it will just be practical things, you know, like picking up the kids from school, you know, like dropping off food. Like if they have like young children, just like looking after the kids so that they can take a break, you know, just to go and sleep sometimes, you know. Uh, Everyone's got like, you know, different dynamics at home sometimes family all come and it's the last thing you want because sometimes people all come and they want you to they want to keep talking to you about it and all you want is silence you know right. you just want to be left alone so really it is about respecting their parameters and really inviting them to be open about what they really need do you need company or do you need space do you need us to be around and cheerful or do you want us just to be here just to hold you do you know what i mean and I had like a variety of, alhamdulillah, I just, like I said, the outpouring was just, subhanAllah, something I've, I've never experienced before. Like our fridge was ram, okay? Like people send so much food. And I actually wrote a short story about this uh, from the perspective of a child whose father has passed away. And interestingly enough, the child is actually resentful of all the people in the house and all the food they keep bringing because the child, A, wants their dad back. B, they want their mum to themselves, and C, they want their mum's cooking again. Oh. <laughs> so, so really it is about just, you know, 
not assuming that you know what they need, but just letting them know, just let me know what you need and how I can help and how I can support you and, and making a safe space for them to say what it is that they need and then always dua. And when you're thinking about that person, just let them know. I'm thinking about you, you know, if you need anything, let me know, you know. Um, that means a lot as well. It means so much. Mm. It does mean so much because I think for widows, um, you know, being widowed and in Edda is different from being divorced and in Edda. Because when you're a widow, you are mourning, you know, and um, and you've got so much to process and so much to go through and also some things related to the relationship itself. So if you had a fantastic relationship and he passed away, your idda is going to look one way. But what if you had a problematic relationship or you guys weren't even getting along and now he's died and you're in this idda, you know? And mm -hmm. I remember a friend of mine whose husband passed away quite soon after. She was in that situation. So mm -hmm. again... Everyone's it is different, and and so for the people around them, it really is a matter of just making them, letting them know that we're here to support you in whichever way you need us. Um, yeah. Subhanallah. Yeah. So I think really what you're saying is um, listen. Yeah. Give that person the space to be able to tell you what they need. Yeah. Um, rather than assuming. Yeah. And, and for anybody in that situation, you know, don't. Don't assume people know what you need, you know. You need also need to be vocal uh, and, and, and kind of set your boundaries or <laughs> destroy the boundaries, whatever it is that you need at that time. Um, and, and, and be prepared to be open with people so that you can get the help that you need. Because as women sometimes, you know, we've got a tendency to kind of just say, oh, I'll handle it, I'll handle it, you know. So was it very soon after? Uh, I'm imagining like a lot of people, a lot of noise, a lot of, you know, like... Uh, movement going on in your house and then at some point they must have all left yeah and then it was just you and the kids well by that time i was working so i was going into the office yeah so get on it was a it. bit different and this is the thing that you have to get on with life um but i think for 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 many widows there is the loneliness and the missing the person but then there's also the new responsibilities that you potentially have that you didn't have before so if you weren't the breadwinner you have to deal with that now. In my case, I was a complete kept woman. So a proper, what's they called? Surrendered wife. So I didn't know anything about tax. I didn't know anything about the bank accounts. I didn't know even what the business did. Okay. And had to learn all that really quickly. And again, I wrote another poem about this. We might do a giveaway for your readers, yeah. actually, that particular book of poetry. poetry. But um, just about all the paperwork and all the red tape. Oh and God, things that you don't think about so much what yeah what the other half's doing yeah yeah it's really mm -hmm. stuff that you do not think about until you're in a situation where you have to start signing things you have to start mm -hmm. getting lawyers if there was no will and that's another thing as well that could benefit people inshallah who are listening to this the prophet mm -hmm. warned us about sleeping three days without a will this is serious people because if you die and you have assets and you have no will, you are causing a big mushkila for your wife and mm -hmm. your children mm -hmm. and whoever else your executor is going to be, you know, whoever that person's going to be, it causes a huge problem, especially if you have assets dotted here and there. Your wife potentially doesn't even know about doesn't those assets, know, exactly. you know, so, so you I'm need not. to have documented all of that, assign an executor to your will. And make sure that you've provided for your own funeral and stuff like that. Because I remember a sister uh, messaged me and she said, we want to do a collection for you. And I was like, huh? Collection for what? She said, oh, you know, just to help you and the kids and, and, and you know, to bury your husband or whatever. And I'm 
I'm so proud to say, and I know that he would have felt good about this, and I said to her, we are not in need of the charity of the people, alhamdulillah. My husband left us well provided for. And that was one thing that was a point for him because we used to see other people doing collections. And he always was like, why didn't you make provisions, man? Like, how are you going to die and not even have enough money to get yourself buried, let alone now what's going to happen? You know, there's no mm. savings. Mm. There, there's, there's no business to pass on. Like, you haven't put anything for the future. And now your wife's going to have to deal with that. And then this is the whole widows at the mercy of the community or now they become the responsibility of the community. So those people who have the means, I'm not saying everyone does, but people who have assets and they have the means do be thinking of the future and do be planning for the future so that inshallah you can start investing now in an easier transition for your family when you're older because leave not when you pass away um, because leaving your family with no will or uh, so with no money firstly is a problem but also leaving your family with no will and there are assets it becomes an actual court situation and you have to actually apply to the court to be given um, the probate, uh, you know, a right of probate. And that can take a long time. And especially if the assets are unknown, it can take a long time to gather all the information that's required. In the meantime, if you've got no money there, how is your wife and kid? How are they surviving? You know, the thing is, it's such a difficult subject to bring up. Uh, with young people, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm in not terms talking of... about young people. I'm talking about people our age. I'm talking about people in their forties. You know, are, are we young age? people? Young, as in not the age that people imagine. Oh that no, going to pass this is away, this right? is very short-sighted. I know. This is absolutely. very short-sighted. Yeah. From as soon as as a Muslim, as a Muslim you, you should know that you need not a taboo for us. As a know? Muslim, you mm. should know that you, if you've got anything, you need to have a will. Right? No three days mm. that you sleep without a will. That's the first thing. And secondly, I think as soon as you've got a stable income, you yeah. should be saving. Now as we're talking about money stuff, issues, but like right. as soon as you have a stable income, even if it's just 50 pounds a month, just a standing order, yeah. just to put it into a separate place, just for a rainy day, just for the future, you know? It's, it's Yanni, yeah. Wajib Yanni. Definitely. And especially the more complicated your finances get, yeah. you know, the, the more of a mess you're leaving. Exactly, know, exactly. Everybody else to. And it, it's just the emotional toll of it because in yeah. Egypt it's different, obviously. Oh, you can oh imagine how different it is in Egypt. I don't know how many times, how many different offices this, we went to. Did computers yet in the offices? No, everything was handwritten. Handwritten from Sorry, one office uh, to the uh, other, to the other, to the get the signature here, go over there to get a signature, get mm. this, get that, get this proof, get this translated. This, I mean, of course, in Pass Egypt it was... Place to exactly, another, to another, exactly, yeah. exactly. Alhamdulillah, You're just giving me flashbacks of Egypt and those are the worst type of flashbacks. Administration in Egypt, those are the worst type of flashbacks. That's actually what made me hate the country, actually, to be honest. Me too. Yeah. Alhamdulillah, I love I love Egypt. Yeah. I have a love hate relationship with Egypt. Like everyone, Yanni. Yeah. We're all in the same boat. But I think the admin was probably that's the hate side. One of the one of the times when you just wanted to cry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just so bad. It's peak, as they I, say. I had a sister who wanted to become Muslim. Mm-hmm. They said, you need a passport photograph. <laughs> she came to the masjid, right? And she, like, Allah's her. And she wanted to become Muslim. And she just wanted to do it. You know, some people, they don't want to just do it with a little gathering at home. They want to do it. Mm-hmm. They want to have the certificate. They want to feel... Yeah. Proper. So we went there and they're like, um, you need a passport photograph. You need stamps. You need this. You need that. And it was like, I was like, Subhanallah, the girl, the woman has come to you. She wants to be a Muslim. 
get her, man. You know, get her through the door. Sort it out. And so it was another delay of a few hours, right? Yeah. Of us going from one... And I was so embarrassed, you know, like, yeah. that she had to go through all of that. But it was like, this is Egypt, you know? It is Egypt. It is. It is. But Jazakallah for sharing all of that with us. Um, I think it's the first time I've spoken about it publicly, actually. And it yeah. was actually very difficult for me to write about it in the book. But I know, I knew that I needed to because the title of the book is Show Up. And it's like a motivational manifesto for Muslim women. And that... This is your new book. This is the new book coming out next year, inshallah. But that attitude was, was a direct result of losing Suleiman al-Rahman. Directly. I didn't have that attitude before. The attitude of showing up. Showing up, yeah. Right. Um, and what that means, showing up, is being present authentically in your life and making a decision to, to, to show up in all of your roles, you know? to be mindful, to be present, to be intentional with everything that you do. Mm -hmm. um, and to understand that you're here for a reason, you know, and it's no accident that you had three little kids under five. It's no accident that your husband took a second wife. It's no accident that that business failed. It's no accident that you lost your parents. All of this was preparing you for something greater. Mm -hmm. And all of that, if you choose, can make you an even more powerful force in your life. But it's really how you, you know, the story you tell yourself, you know, the beliefs that you choose to adopt. It's a lot of mindset stuff. But really that showing up and making a decision to say I'm here and I'm here for a reason. And I'm going to make sure that I maximize the benefit from this life before it's taken away from me. That came as a direct result of losing my husband. I didn't have that attitude before. I remember the dedication in uh, yeah. from my sister's lips was to him, right? Yes, it was. I, I read stuff like that. Yes, I, I it's important. That. Yeah. That's what tells you, important. like a little piece of the writer and yeah, their life, yeah. slice of life. I the like the, the wind too. beneath your wings, you'd yeah. said. He was, mashallah. Inshallah, may Allah unite you in Jannah. I mean, I mean, I mean. Um, so, Naima, you're on a mission to get everyone to write. Uh, I've noticed that you, you really, I mean, you inspired me to, you know, write and alhamdulillah published a book, <laughs> mashallah. And that was great. And um, I First remember... First of many, inshallah. Inshallah. Uh, but now you're widening the net, I've noticed. And you're really putting the message out there. Mm. And you're, you're building, you have courses, you're, you're offering your mentorship yeah. to people. Mm. Why should people write? I think that... I believe, and I'll just tell you a story about uh, when I went to a TED talk um, a few months ago. Ooh. And uh, it was why didn't the one... you invite me? It was in Bradford. Okay. There's TEDx talks everywhere, so okay. you don't have to come all the way to Bradford for one. But there was one TEDx Bradford, okay. and I was sitting with two ladies on either side of me, and we ended up kind of chatting and you know just just sharing what brought us here. Mm. And while I was listening to them, I was like, I looked around the auditorium, and I said, you know what? I reckon every single person in this room could do a TED talk if they had the right training. Mm. I think everyone's got something worthy of a TEDx stage, right, to, to, to share. And I believe that about stories as well. I believe every one of us has a story to tell. And because we are unique beings, when we write from a place of authenticity and vulnerability, we are able to bring something to the world that nobody else can bring, that can't be replicated. It's like if you write uh, an essay on childbirth and I write an essay on childbirth, even if we both had natural births and we both gave birth to boys, for example, and our husbands were there, 
you're going to write some something completely different from me and you know and I'm going to write something completely different from you mainly because of you are different you are unique and you have your own unique perspective experience understanding way of expressing yourself and everything so i believe firstly that every one of us has a story to tell a story that has value and a story that needs to be heard by someone else out there mm-hmm. that will resonate with someone out there that there are a tribe of people who are waiting for your perspective waiting for your guidance waiting for your experience to learn from you to be supported by you etc so i believe that very very strongly whether that writing takes the uh takes the guise of articles or uh blogs or you know sort of anthology writing essay writing or full blown books fiction or non-fiction for me is not really material it's more a case of people understanding the value of their own stories and then being shown the way to actually write those stories and be able to share them with the world for the benefit of the world and since last year we've been working on the muslim writers project which is basically our contribution to nurturing the next generation of muslim writers uh who and especially muslim muslim sisters who don't necessarily feel confident enough to access the current writers community wherever they are mm. many you know we we find that a lot of our our um students and clients um in the muslim writers project are pretty much practicing sisters or maybe a bit more conservative sisters or sisters who are looking for a muslim space in which to explore their writing so we offer them that and uh yeah we've had some amazing times we've had some we've had courses for children's writing for sort of general writing for fiction and we had a summit where we you know we uh you were in the summit weren't you Yeah you took part in the summit and we had just amazing writers from all different walks of life sharing their expertise in what I what I hope is kind of my modus operandi which is a spirit of togetherness and the idea that we are stronger together. Mm-hmm. And that is huge for me because I don't believe anyone is my competition just like I don't believe anyone is your competition. I believe that if you and I work together it benefits us and it benefits our people as well. So any time I work on a project I'm always trying to draw people in and pull people in because it elevates everyone, right? So we did that and now we've been moving into the writing coaching space, the book coaching space and now we work with women from all walks of life, Muslim and non-Muslim, who have a message to share and want to write a non-fiction book and now we're starting to publish as well. So it's very exciting and we love it. Alhamdulillah. Mashallah. Jazakallah. Yeah, writing is writing helps you think. Yeah. It helps you develop your your ideas and what you stand for and what yeah. and i love the idea of owning your story and i think yeah just picking up on what you said about that earlier mm. you know we are still in a space where we need to hear more diverse voices and the publishing industry knows that and they've been acknowledging that for the last few years now so the more muslims are telling their genuine stories the more we can contribute to the narrative because unfortunately there still is a lot of the narrative that is not organic it's not coming from us it's other people making films or other people writing books or other people writing plays about muslims that unfortunately can kind of feed into stereotypes or just focus on things that are not really what we are worried about you know yeah. and and don't address our own concerns or we'll have some agenda exactly. even if they're muslims sometimes yeah know? that can yeah. happen too yeah. exactly and it does happen mm-hmm. so you know the more muslims write and i really want to encourage more muslim men to write because mm. there is a huge gap for muslim boys fiction 
because we have now, okay, Muslim children's books, there's quite a few now. Mm-hmm. Middle grade, which is like early like chapter books, early chapter books, and then sort of, you know, novels for, for teenagers. Uh, the majority are with female protagonists and written by Muslim women. And there are very few Muslim male voices out there. And I really feel, this is something that, you know, I feel quite strongly about because I think that in our society, not in our community, but in the wider society, I really feel like Muslim men are extremely marginalized and mm-hmm. their voices are almost not welcome because they're seen to be the privileged ones in our community, which they kind of are, to be fair. But within the wider society, they're not because mm. they are, you know, at risk of so many things, the anti-terror laws, you know, stop and search, racism, class issues, the yeah. whole demonization thing. And if you look in our media, mm. you will see that there's kind of two tropes. Mm. There is the conservative slash Islamic oppressive male patriarch and then the oppressed woman who's dying to be liberated from hijab. Right. So these yeah. are kind of like the two tropes that we have. And it's up to the brothers really to to start addressing some of those through fiction and nonfiction mm-hmm. and really just let, let their voices be heard more and really start owning their story. Because I feel brothers also need a safe space where they like we had with sisters where we centered ourselves and we were able to then be honest about whatever issues we were facing. I think brothers need a space like that too, where they don't have to perform because I feel like in our community, there's a lot of performance. So you have an appearance of say piety, for example. And if you have a beard and you wear a certain type of clothing, it's assumed you're a particular way and you have to live up to that. Mm -hmm. So you can't admit to, depression or drug use or anger issues or you know mm-hmm. loveless marriage or anything like that you know because you're you have to keep your image up because that's kind of how you're seen in the community and in society and I think I think Muslim men need those those safe spaces for their mental health to be honest definitely we have them alhamdulillah we have them a lot more don't you think don't you think we as women have a I lot think more we make freedom them. <laughs> we've made them when right we, when we don't have them we make them we sort of like just get yeah. together and make yeah and we have yeah. been over the past like 10 years maybe more than that we've been creating more and more spaces for muslim women to be able to be themselves and and and, and deal with whatever they need to deal with but i don't think i've seen the same happening uh with brothers and the thing is why i say that is because we know that suicides and depression amongst men is way higher than it is amongst women. And Muslim men are not exempt from that, especially the younger ones. Mm-hmm. So that's my thought for the day. And, and how would that look? What would, do you think that would look like in terms of brothers creating that space? Support groups, counselling, uh, therapy. You know, a safe space is a space where we can come and we can speak without judgment. And we know that you, the people there all respect that safe space writing, you know, having a publication that could work. Podcasts are another great way as well, uh, where that particular podcast is going to be addressing these. I think I've seen a few. Yeah, uh, there have been a few yeah. that are coming up. And I and well, you mean it doesn't have to only be about dawah or politics yes yes uh, reality activism. It, it needs to be but, about yeah. the the stuff that is really going on in people's homes on a day-to-day day basis yeah. i think it's i think you know uh stephen covey talks about the sphere of influence and the sphere of concern mm-hmm. and i feel like a lot of people feel very comfortable in the sphere of concern that's politics social issues islamophobia even racism and all of that right and i this is my own personal view because i believe in it that allah has given us uh free will 
And I believe that Allah giving us free will has empowered us to choose. We, it's, it's not even my belief, it's a fact, okay? We have the ability to choose, right? We can choose to focus here or focus there. I can choose to see this as a good thing or a bad thing. It's a choice. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, nothing is set in stone for me. So I feel like when people choose to focus on the circle of concern, which is the stuff that they cannot impact, it automatically diverts their focus from the things they actually can change, which is the circle of influence. Right. That's typically the day-to-day -day stuff. That's typically things within exactly. yourself, within your it's family. Not glamorous. It's not glamorous <laughs> at all. And it can be really hard work sometimes. And it mm. requires a lot of honesty and humility. But our communities will not change unless we start to pay attention to our sphere of that sphere of influence that we have. The more we're in the sphere of concern, yeah. we don't have any energy for the sphere of influence anymore. Because I'm so busy watching, you know, uh, dour debates, <laughs> you yes. know, from uh, Regent's Park attack. and Panorama <laughs> and, you know, this this debate and that big situation and reading the news and, and watching Al Jazeera. going to protest, going to, you yeah. know, you, you can get into this false sense of I'm, I'm doing, doing something, something right? yes. when your family's falling apart Thank or you. you're... Your yep. inner spirituality is falling exactly. apart. Exactly. Is that's, that's, yeah, I agree the, with you. The reason why that's a um, a false economy or a, a kind of a false way of looking at your usefulness and your mm. your activity is that if you don't work on the internal, you don't hold the fort. You know, you yeah. don't sort your yeah. basics, your inter, your home out, yeah. right, uh, and your family and the the sphere of uh, influence influence mm. out, then. Sooner or later, it will fall apart. Yeah. And then everything else that you're concerned about will yeah. also be affected. And, and, and the thing is that the, it's, it's a complete waste of energy for most of us. Yeah. Because we're not journalists. Most of us are not journalists. Most, enough, most of us are not politicians. Most of us do not have 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 people who are paying attention to what we say. Some of us do, <laughs> but most of us don't, right? So yeah. for you to invest your energy in liking and retweeting and you know watching stuff and commenting and having YouTube comment battles and all of this kind of thing, it dissipates your energy mm -hmm. for the stuff that is really important. important. So you don't have any energy anymore because also like getting involved with like you know fights on in, in Twitter and having Twitter wars and stuff like that. It's very glamorous, like you said, it's very exciting. It gets the testosterone it going, hit. it's got your dopamine, dopamine hit. hit. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so you feel like you said, like you're doing something worthwhile. You're fighting for the dean. You're fighting for the dawa and all of this kind of thing. But the reality is, you're and not doing you anything. And you see the dishes, right? And the laundry. Exactly. And and really, how much have you changed? How much have you really accomplished? And how much? Exactly. How much impact can you really have on these global geopolitical issues? If you're like most people, very little, because it's just well, you, like a keyboard warrior, is to fix yourself up. Thank you. And your family. Yeah. Because we sometimes underestimate that we are just like a node in yeah. a network. Yeah. You know, our children, subhanAllah, I remember once saying to my dad, dad, what's my legacy going to be? You know, this is years ago when I just had a baby and I was like feeling like, oh, you know, so overwhelmed. And he said, what do you think that is? He pointed to my children. You know, totally. and I was like, subhanAllah, sometimes yeah. we, it's it's right in front of us. Yeah. You know, we're, we're building human beings. Yeah. And, and our families and our local communities. And may I just jump in there and say that this applies equally to the men and the women. 
Absolutely. Of course, the women have the primary responsibility, mm. but as a man, say I'm in a man's shoes, those are my children. That's my lineage. That's my family. And those are my kids that are going out into the world. So as a man who is responsible and has a sense of, you know, kind of leadership and, and, and vision for my family, I'm not going to leave it all to my wife. And I'm off swanning off at protests and all that kind of thing. Like, you know, I need mm. to invest in these children too. And mm -hmm. I need to invest in my relationship with them so that they can actually learn from me and listen to me and open up to me and share with me. And I think a lot of fathers maybe miss out that part or are maybe unaware of the fact that, you know, yeah, maybe you married a good woman. Okay, because you wanted her to raise righteous children. But you have a role to play right. and a crucial role to play. We know the importance of the male role model for the, ch the male child, but also for the female child. Yeah. You know, you are going to be the model of the man that your daughter is going to want to marry eventually. You know, your son, if he respects you and admires you, he's going to want to be like you. But if you're never there, if you don't have time for them, you know, if you're one of those dads who is things. out working, yep. working, and then when you come home, you're in, in front of the TV or you're playing your games or you're on your phone the whole time, which we know is a real thing, yep. how much impact can you really have on them? Yeah, I think it's about all of us yeah. as parents and as members of this society and community becoming more conscious yeah. and investing our time in the real, sometimes the mundane things yeah. the difficult things the unglamorous things but totally. the things that really matter and, yeah. and will build our communities Jazakallah khair and Naima you have a free gift you want to offer our um, listeners and viewers yes I do because uh, I'm very very excited about the show up book coming uh, next year inshallah so I have a little free like introductory version if you like a free mm -hmm. ebook it's called be the hero and uh it's available for free download and it's on bit.ly slash make no, be the hero ebook and i think we'll probably have the link uh you know where it's uh, where it's suitable um but also anybody who follows me on social media can find that link there because i share it everywhere and it really is my love letter to my sisters it's about the six steps to finding your inner awesome. And uh, I've had, you know, some wonderful feedback about it. I really wrote it from the heart. So it would be fantastic if everybody who listens to it just goes to the link and gets their own copy and shares it. Inshallah. Jazakallah khair. We'll be sure to put that in the comments, or sorry, in the description. So Jazakallah khair and Naima, I'm going to give you a hug after this. It's always good to talk to you, mashallah. Oh, alhamdulillah. I'm glad we got this opportunity. Alhamdulillah. We never yes. really talked about it fully, I yeah. think, you know, a lot of the things that we've mentioned today. Um, well, uh, brothers and sisters, um, I'm going to wrap up now. So, Jazakumullah khairan for listening and uh, do share this uh, episode with somebody who it might benefit, you know. I'm sure there's people out there that need to hear this, need to hear the empowering and positive messages that Sister Naima gave us today. Um, I'm certainly inspired um, and I'm sure you are too. Inshallah, with that, I will bid you farewell. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika ashadu wa la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.